Hey, you're listening to the Adventures in Advising podcast with Colm Cronin and Matt Markin. Are you passionate about working with students and making a difference in their lives? Then join us as we bring together those in the global academic advising community to share knowledge, best practices, and their own advising stories. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and also follow us on our social media. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Advising Podcast. And as always, keep advising. Hello and welcome to episode 22 of Adventures in Advising with me, Colm Cronin. And hey, greetings and salutations, my advising friends. This is Matt Markin and happy November. We're almost at the end of 2020. And if you're like me, you're ready for this year to be over. For those of you who are jumping into spring registration this month, I know it's a busy time for us during November and December, but you know what? We got this. We have a packed episode ahead with four fantastic interviews. But before we get to those, I just want to take a moment to give a shout out to my own institution, Dublin City University, which was just named the Irish University of the Year in the Good University Guide. Access to education, graduate employment opportunities and the university's response to COVID-19 were all highlighted. Indeed, Alistair McCall, the editor of the Sunday Times Good University Guide, said DCU's response to the COVID-19 pandemic for its students shows the emotional literacy you would expect from an institution that has championed social mobility throughout its entire 40-year history. And this year, DCU is celebrating its 40th birthday. So a really nice way to celebrate that. And just kudos to the entire DCU community. I think it is a real testament to everyone's commitment and dedication to our students and to their learning. Right on. Well, we have a stacked episode for you all, so let's not waste any more time. Let's dive right in. Up first is the new NACADA president, Cecilia Oliveras from University of Missouri at Columbia. So I first met Cecilia at last year's NACADA annual conference in Kentucky when I was recording videos for the Emerging Leaders Program. And she's such a great person, down to earth, and really looks out for others' well-being. In case in point, at said conference... So I'm recording Cecilia's video on EOP, and I was just not feeling good. So we're about like halfway through her interview, and I start feeling dizzy. I wait for her to answer her question, and I'm like, uh, can we take a break? And she's like, of course, no problem. Is everything okay? Can I help? I'm apologizing. She's saying like, don't warp, don't be, don't worry. We can reschedule, not a problem. And I just remember her saying that me feeling better was more important than recording the video. And we could always reschedule. We ended up pushing through and finishing it, though. And at least with this podcast interview, everything went A-OK. So let's take a listen. Right, our next guest is Cecilia Oliveras, who is the director of the Transfer Center and First Generation Student Initiatives, and also the interim director of the Discovery Center at the University of Missouri Columbia, where she oversees admissions, advising, and engagement services for students transferring and students exploring majors at the university. Cecilia has nearly 20 years of experience in higher education, including 12 years as an academic advisor and advising administrator. Prior to working at Missouri, Cecilia served as the director 
of the Center for Academic Retention and Enrichment Services at the University of Memphis and as Director of Academic Advisement and Career Services at Heartland Community College. She has been an active member of NACADA, the Global Community for Academic Advising, since 2008 and now currently serves as president for the association. Above all, Cecilia enjoys spending time with her family, partner Rourke, children Memphis and Grayson, and her two dogs, and also enjoys traveling and cooking. Cecilia, first congratulations on starting out as the president, uh, probably the first president uh, in a virtual sense, and (laughs) welcome to the podcast. Thank you, and thank you so much for having me. We are delighted to have the the opportunity to get an, a chance to speak to you, I suppose, so soon into your term as president. Uh, it's it's exciting for, for us to have the, the possibility to, to do that. So um, as Matt said, welcome. One of the things we frequently open um, the when we're talking to guests is to ask them about how they got into academic advising? What was their journey? And I suppose that's, we'd be curious about hearing about your journey uh, into higher ed and, and how you ended up as an academic advisor. Sure. Um, so my first job out of graduate school was at a small liberal arts college in Iowa, Grinnell College, um, as a multicultural and academic advising counselor. And um, in that role, I actually advised um, multicultural student groups. But part of my role was as an academic advising counselor, which is a little bit different than some of the traditional academic advising roles in that um, I didn't deal with course registration um, or curriculum planning with the students. Um, It was really all of the other things that affect students, um, you know, outside of the classroom that affect them uh, in the classroom. And so it was um, really connecting with the students on all of those other things. Um, And so it was never really my plan to go into academic advising, which I think is maybe typical of many of us who are academic advisors. Um, And that was really my first taste of it, working with faculty who identified issues with students um, or concerns with students in the classroom and really helping students navigate the resources on campus um, so that they could um, succeed in the classroom and and onward to their degrees. Um, After that, though, and I probably should preface that my journey through higher education um, really has been, um, I guess, what you would call a trailing spouse in that my partner's position as a college coach um, really has kind of dictated our paths in terms of where we have landed geographically. And um, so higher for me, higher ed, uh, my positions in higher ed have sort of bounced around um, through different um, aspects or different areas of higher education. So after that particular role, I went into residence life, um, which is, uh, you know, quite different <laughs> experience, um, but definitely gave me a lot of um skills and experience in crisis management and um, really working with students, again, in their spaces um, outside of the classroom. And after that, moved into, um, or rather decided to move out of the residence halls and um, started applying for positions and uh, landed a position as an academic advisor at a community college. Um, And so taking my experiences from multicultural uh, and academic advising counselor and um, in the residence halls, you know, there are a lot of 
uh, ways to connect with students and really understanding the diversity of experiences that they have. And since then, I really have just continued to be in the academic advising space. Um, I, I love it. Um, I love working with individual students. I love working with my colleagues. Um, and, and really, you know, academic advising is nice because you're really connecting with so many different aspects of the college experience. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned the residential life. We had a, a guest on a few episodes ago, Evelyn Knox, who also worked in uh, residential life and then uh, went into academic advising. And she talked about how transferable a lot of those skills were. Um, but she did say she didn't miss the 24-7 being on call, though. Yes. Oh, I have plenty of um, great stories because I had uh, one child when we moved in and we had two by the time we moved out. So I have some great stories of being a hall coordinator with a family. Um, <laughs> not really the most ideal uh, situation to be in, but plenty of stories to tell. <laughs> Awesome. And maybe we'll get to hear some of those maybe stories. We'll get to hear some. <laughs> but you have multiple roles right now and, and Nakata will be one that we'll, we'll definitely talk to, but currently um, in at your institution, you have various roles. And I was wondering if you could discuss some of those, like in terms of what your roles entail as director of the Transfer Center and First Generation Student Initiatives, as well as the uh, interim director of the Discovery Center. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Cracking the college admissions code just got easier. I'm Rebecca Gordon, your go-to fictional college admissions counselor for the rich and famous. Tune into The Admissions Game, Satire Edition, and uncover my top secrets for sure-fire Ivy League admission. Ditch the old Photoshop your face onto a water polo hunk trick. We reveal all the latest loopholes. So laugh and learn with the admissions game wherever you podcast. Sure. Um, so the transfer center is still pretty new at Mizzou. Um, this is um, obviously, I think, in a lot of at a lot of institutions, um, really, you know, uh, centralizing support for transfer students um, into the university has um, become more important as we have a lot of students that are moving in and out of our institutions. And um, with that come challenges of the transitions um, that they bring, um, you know, changing institutions, limited time to get acclimated um, and limited time to, um, you know, finish their degrees um, in, a, in a cost effective way. Uh, so at the University of Missouri, um, after many attempts, I think over the years to um, really coordinate these services. I was very fortunate to be um, part of a team that um, put together a successful proposal, and the university uh, made a significant investment into our new transfer center. And um, we are a centralized support unit. Um, we span um, admissions through advising and um, a lot of liaising and advocacy for our transferring students um, coming into the university. Um, we have a primary focus on, a, on our Missouri Community Colleges and the partnerships there. Um, I am very fortunate to have two transfer admission coordinators in my unit, two academic advisors, and myself plus our staff person, um, or I'm sorry, administrative support. 
um, person as well. And um, one of our big things that we have is a big programs that we have is um, called Mizumac. It's a co-enrollment program with our local community college, um, a really area community college in which our students are co-enrolled um, simultaneously in classes, both at the community college and at the university. And so it's sort of an extended transfer process, right? They're really getting acclimated from day one. Um, and so we are coordinating a lot of those um, pieces from admissions to advising, helping them through the transfer admission process, um, you know, getting them connected early um, into that process. They, many of, most of them actually are living on campus as well. Uh, so it's a very um, unique experience for those students to be starting as community college students, um, but um, simultaneously working uh, towards their associate's degree and their bachelor's degree. And so we have quite a few, several hundred students in that particular program that's had significant growth since we started in fall of 2017. Um, on the Discovery Center side, I'm very fortunate that we have sister offices that are physically located next to each other on the same floor in our Student Success Center building on campus. Um, and the Discovery Center is um, a centralized unit for our exploring students. So I know you interviewed Megumi um, recently too, and she's also director of the Exploratory uh, Center on her campus. And um, so it's very similar. We're working with students, um, primarily freshmen who are coming in and exploring their majors, but also working with students who are transitioning between majors. Um, and for those students that maybe didn't get into a competitive major in the upper level, um, we're working with those students in parallel planning and helping them find the, the right next or the next write um, an appropriate major to complete their degree at Mizzou. It's a recently rebranded um, office. Uh, it used to be in connection, um, it used to be a collaboration between our uh, Vice Provost for Undergraduate Studies and our College of Arts and Science. But um, with our strategic plan for the institution, we um, created an independent unit, basically, um, for this population of students. And um, I was already working in tandem with that particular office and um, very fortunate to have been asked to be the interim director um, over that staff as well. It has been um, a fantastic um, partnership between the two offices, and I'm very, very fortunate to be leading such a great team um, on both staffs at the university. Yeah, a fair play on being able to to juggle all of those things <laughs> alongside, obviously, now your your work with uh, Nakata. And I know when I was doing the some research uh, before the interview, I I had seen you had mentioned in, in a few places that you had worked in in a number of different institutions, but Nakata had been the the consistent, the, the constant. And I suppose um, you're, you're now Nakata president, but how did Nakata first come across your radar? Yeah. So when I was an academic advisor at the community college um, in Illinois, uh, I had the opportunity, actually, my supervisor had suggested that a couple of us attend the Region 5 conference, which was, uh, I believe, at Grand Rapids, Michigan at the time. So we took a trip up. It was my first um, advising conference. I've been at to other higher ed conferences before. Um, and Jenny Bloom actually was the keynote speaker. I believe she was also president at that time. Um, and I was just very intrigued because I was a new advisor. I'd only probably been working for um, not even a year, I think, at that point. Um, and was just very inspired um, by her discussion about appreciative advising um, and really hearing some great um, things that were happening on other campuses and the best practices and, and whatnot. And it was just a good conference experience. And then a few months later, I had the opportunity to go to the annual conference um, in Chicago. And that was really where um, I think that was kind of my, my jumping point, you know, really into Nakata. Um, I, 
it was overwhelming. I will tell you, you know, 3000 people at a conference. Um, I'd never been really in that space where there were so many people um, at one time. And I remember um, going to the opening session and the Emerging Leaders Program uh, members were introduced. And I remember thinking, huh, that just sounds really interesting and kind of kept that in the back of my mind. And um, post-conference, spent some time reading about it and um, a couple months later went through the application process. Um, and that's really, uh, really where it started, right? Was um, probably like many um, attending because it's professional development. Um, but then, you know, you find a few things that you really, really love and that inspire you and um, you dig in a little bit deeper and you learn a lot more and you make a lot more connections and suddenly, um, you know, a few years later, 12 years later, you're Nakata president and you still don't really know how that happened. <laughs> you mentioned Jenny Bloom and uh, how amazing she is. I mean, the first time I got to see her was she spoke at, she was our keynote at the uh, 2017 uh, Region 9 conference uh, in Santa Rosa, which is a beautiful conference and great storyteller. Um, and especially when she's talking about appreciative advising. And then, you know, you're talking about mm -hmm kind of just like attending sessions or stumbling upon things or finding out about something, looking more into it. And then, hey, let me try this out. And yeah, and then years later, went from, you know, an emerging leaders program, mm -hmm. board of directors, vice president, president. So definitely a, a wonderful journey there. Now, Nakata mm -hmm. is a large advising organization. You know, there are there's advising communities, there's region conferences, international conferences, annual conferences, advising institutes, listservs, there are roles uh, that members are voted into, there are positions that members are appointed. And sometimes it can be overwhelming knowing how much there is to do in Nakata and how many levels of leadership there are. So uh, my question to you is, if let's say you have a new Nakata member and they're eager to learn, they want to help out, they start to feel a little overwhelmed when they think of the organizational structure. If they asked you, Cecilia, can you tell me about the Nakata organizational structure? Is there a general way that that you're able to answer that? Yeah, I think in terms of um, visualizing Nakata uh, on the website, there's actually a, a nice sort of graphic that explains the, what the board of directors is, what the council is, the different regions. Um, and then each of the divisions, um, you can get a little bit more information about each of them and how to get involved in specific um, groups within all of those. So I think visually, I think our website is great for, for that. And that one graphic um, really does sort of lay out um, the basics, right, of, of Nakata leadership um, in, the, in the general structure, I guess, of the association. Um, so that's what, probably where I would say, you know, um, point someone to and sort of explain that. I will say um, it took me a while. I felt like I was probably already well into my Nakata experience and even as emerging leader um, before I really understood the structure. Um, and so I think that is fair um, <laughs> that, uh, and I would ease anyone's um, confusion and anxiety about that, that even as president, I'm still learning about all the things that we that we do. There's so much that's happening in an um, organization with 15,000 members. There are so many different um ways to be involved. And we have affiliations, you know, with, with state organizations and um, uh, even within states, you know, the schools and systems have some affiliate affiliation with Nakata in that way. Uh, so there are so many different ways um, and so many things that our members and leaders are doing that it's, it's easy to get overwhelmed and, and that's understandable. I think that what I would 
probably suggest to a new member who's really looking into where they um, fit best and where, you know, where they want to learn is really kind of pick one or two areas. Um, you know, what, what's the student population you're working with? What are the areas of research maybe that you're interested in? And start there um, and start small. This is an organization, as you know, um, as large as it is, it um, very quickly becomes um, small uh, in in the networks that you make. You know, it just takes a couple connections. And um, from there, it sort of starts to snowball in terms of who you know. And I remember my first couple conferences, I didn't know anyone. I spent time with my colleagues for my institution because I really didn't know anyone. Um, and then taking that jump into Emerging Leaders Program for me was a way to quickly connect, um, you know, not just with the 20 or so people that were in our particular cohort, but your network starts to grow very, very quickly. And I don't think that's any different than joining um, uh, an advising community or, um, you know, getting involved in your region, that those networks start to grow pretty quickly once you um, kind of find that area um, that is that you're passionate about. And one of the things I think that um, you, you, you're passionate about and that you are the embodiment of is... Um, a topic you presented on, I think, with Sandy Waters um, after the Emerging Leaders program, you uh, did a series, uh, Women Thriving, Not Just Surviving a Career in Academic Advising slash Higher Education. And here you are as president. Maybe you could talk to us a little bit, I suppose, about um, how that series came about, um, what it encompassed, and now reflecting on it kind of five years on. Yeah, absolutely. That's a fantastic question. So Sandy Waters um, is now retired from Old Dominion University. She um, and I were paired together in the Emerging Leaders Program um, in San Antonio, Texas. And um, when we got together to meet after we were paired um, together, we were walking, talking. Um, I think we were doing a little shopping, um, you know, sort of the uh, Skip a, skip a session or two and <laughs> get to know each other as a new mentor-mentee pair. And we were talking. We were talking about life. We were talking about um, balancing all the things that we have. Um, at the time, my children were very young. I think I had a um, toddler, a preschooler, and an um, uh, early elementary school um, age child. I think Sandy's girls were um, high school, maybe college age at that point. So she was a little bit farther in her career than I than I was at that point. Um, and we were talking about all of those things, right? Talking about um, how you make that next step, how you juggle life um, as a woman in higher education. And sometimes you have to take a step back. And um, sometimes you don't get to fulfill um, the goals that you have for yourself because they're other competing priorities. And sometimes it's family and sometimes it's work and sometimes it's um, other things, right? Um, and that turned into an idea very quickly about presenting and um, presenting um, specifically with uh, other women in Nakata who have been down that journey um, and who have um, found success in Nakata, found success in their um, on their particular campuses and um, in life in general, right? But with those also come challenges. And so we presented at the Orlando conference in it was 2010. And um, our panelists were Delane Priest, Susan Campbell, Nancy King, um, and Jane Drake, I think. Oh gosh. 
I feel really bad that I cannot remember. I'm pretty sure that was our four. Um, you might have to correct me here. It's been a, it's been like 10 years, y'all. Um, <laughs> uh, but our room was packed. There were, um, oh, I think Jenny Bloom was on that one too. Sorry. Um, there were uh, like 100 women in the room and um, a couple men. And it was um, awe-inspiring. I'll be quite honest. Um, I was not a panelist. I was facilitating with Sandy. Um, but the uh, the concept that we had in our head when we had talked about the original idea for this was um, sort of like coffee talk, right? Just um, a group of women um, sitting around talking about all of these things and that the participants would be sort of um, observers um, into this conversation. And um, it didn't quite happen that way. We couldn't have comfy couches and and that type of stuff um, in that particular room set up, but um, it was powerful. It was, um, it was, there was just this sense of, um, you know, uh, deep gratitude that um, other people have been there. Um, and when you are feeling like you're the only one going through the challenges that you're going through, um, there are people who've been there and they have been successful and they were very um, vulnerably sharing their triumphs um, over some pretty significant challenges. And I will say um, one of the most um, profound parts of that particular um, session was, um, I believe it was Nancy King talking about juggling um, juggling balls, right? And that there are glass balls and there are rubber balls. And um, your glass balls in life are things like your health and your family. Um, you know, things that if you drop that glass ball, they'll shatter and you can't get them back. And then there are rubber balls. Um, and some of those are maybe a project at work or um, a couple emails, you know, that type of stuff that if you drop those, they may roll away. They might bounce. You can go retrieve it. Um, but it, you know, you can't let those glass balls drop and um, just really remembering to prioritize and taking care of those glass balls, your family, your health, that type of stuff. And I just remember that that stuck with me. It's something I think about very regularly. Um, and I think many people probably in that room still refer back to um, those moments in terms of thinking through when you're juggling priorities, really what truly is a priority. Um, so, um it's probably a lot longer than you were expecting, but um, that was such a powerful event that, um, you know, we did it in a couple different iterations um, for a couple of conferences after that um, with other leaders, um, Jennifer Jocelyn, um, uh, Joanne Daminger, um, you know, it, we've done a couple other, uh, uh, Pat Mason Brown, um, we did one more recently um, with um, some mid-level, uh, you know, kind of mid-career folks as well. Um, and so I think it's just a space where um, we can come together, specifically women, um, and really um, kind of let down our guards sometimes and understand that um, we're not alone in our challenges. I think that's really what I'm trying to say. And that, um, you know, there are days where we're going to be just trying to get through and survive. Um, and there are going to be days when um, we are absolutely thriving and finding those spaces and creating those spaces is important to me. Um, you know, that we can um, come together and be together and um, struggle together, but also celebrate together. You know, talking about like the, the glass balls, rubber balls. I mean, it's, such a great way to kind of think about uh, life and priorities and, and job responsibilities. Um, and someone once told me she she looks at it in terms of with priorities or just 
any, any interactions, is this going to matter five minutes from now, an hour from now, a day from now, a week from now, a year from now? And so some things that she can let go or something that she knows, okay, I need to really focus on this. Um, but yeah, it's definitely great, great reminders. Um, and then even with the, with the sessions, you know, you were talking about how when you, the first time you did, it was a more conversational piece. Um, and I think that's something that I think a lot of presenters too um, really w- want to think about is with what I'm trying to convey, what's the best way to do that? Is it a more lecture style, you know, group style or conversation style? And a lot of times for me, like hearing conversations, the best way that I can emotionally connect uh, with with something. And there was an article from a couple of years ago uh, when you were elected to the board of directors for Nakata. And Jim Spain was quoted as saying that they recognize your commitment to students and student success and that your selection to the Nakata board of directors um, indicates that your peers around the country also have taken notice of your dedication to students. And I think we hear that a lot um, from everything that you've said so far in this interview. Um, And then Jim went on to say that it's a great opportunity and that you'll have an impact on the national level. And I think we can also say at a global level. Now, in that same article, you indicated that as a board of director member, you plan to champion academic advising at all levels within within and across institutions, that you also hope to expand professional development opportunities for advisors and examine the growing diversity of voices and experiences of the advising community, and also that you wanted to expand and apply the framework created for advisor competencies and pathways to further strengthen the professional field of academic advising and research, also in scholarship and practice. Uh, So my question to you would be, do you feel that you and the board of directors accomplished some or all of those goals? Because I would say in a way, I I think a lot of those, if any, I I would say yes. Yeah, I I would have to agree with you. Uh, We're always a work in progress, right? Um, And I would say um, this is my going to my third and final year on the board. um, And we have accomplished um, or at least kind of cleared the path for um, uh, many things to happen. And I think uh, we're yet going to see um, many great things happening um, in Nakata in the next couple of years, Um, specifically. I think a couple of the big things, right, are uh, we just concluded a a region review, um, a very significant, very lengthy project um, with a group of very dedicated Nakata members and leaders um, who um, really dug in um, and spent a lot of time looking and um, asking questions about um, our region structure and made some great recommendations. And now we have an implementation team that is um, taking those recommendations from that region review. And um, we're going to start to put those things into action. Uh, and um, I think that's really going to start to inform what this, the future structure of Nakata looks like, um, what kind of changes we need to make um, to be a successful association for the next 40 years. Um, I think 2020, um, as challenging as it has been, has also given us an opportunity to take um, a good deep breath, a pause, and um, really consider what we've done, um, where we're at, and what we need to do next um, to be, continue to be a successful association. We're very fortunate to have had a very successful virtual conference. Um, uh, 2,300 um, or so of our members joined us. Not much different, um, you know, not much less than what we would have seen in, in um, an actual physical uh, location, um, which is super exciting. Um, and it shows us that we can um, do some great things in some new ways, right? And so I think um, taking the inspiration um, and again, uh, you know, knowing that we can make change um, and implement change fairly quickly, uh, I think, you know, we've got some some great opportunities to, to 
see what we can do and um, who we need to be in the future. Um, I think another part of that is our race, ethnicity and inclusion working group. Um, again, that's another group that um, under Karen Archambault um, as president and then continuing under um, Aaron Justina, that's a, a working group that's really um, picked up some steam um, in terms of what, um, where they're going um, and where they're leading us as, uh, as an association and really looking into, um, are, are we, are we really connecting and are we really embracing, celebrating and amplifying um, the voices of all of our members and specifically those that um, have been um, underrepresented uh, either on their own campuses within NACADA um, and, and, you know, really figuring out where do we need to break down those barriers um, and those um, structural um, structural barriers um, within the association and really having those um, honest, genuine conversations about where we can do more, where we can be better as an association. Um, so I feel as 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 president this year, it's not so much um, you know my agenda. Um, it's really are we collectively doing the things that we need to do um, and making sure that um, I can help make those connections happen, that we can help facilitate change um, as, as a board and really strategically. Um, shape our our mission, um, our vision, and our goals for the next um, few years, but definitely for the next forty plus as well. And obviously, we're recording this um, around about uh, a week after the uh, virtual conference. Um, I suppose um, you know, f- from your perspective, Celia, I- I'm wondering how much of, of the conference did you get to engage in any sessions, or or was it really maybe the the keynotes and then the, the the work in the background yeah uh well i will be quite honest i didn't get to engage nearly as much um as you can imagine with two director positions i'm also advising because i'm also short-staffed um i was juggling meetings and um that type of stuff in addition to the conference probably like many people so i will say i am very happy that we have until um towards the end of november to go back and watch sessions because i definitely did not get to see as much as i wanted um i did have a chance to see a couple on-demand sessions um, early on. Um, but yeah, I, I missed more of the live sessions than I would care to admit um, right now. <laughs> now, you mentioned on-demand sessions, but uh, you were also part of a panel presentation that was an on-demand session, right? Yes. It, yep. Uh, leadership one. Yeah. And uh, with the conference, you're saying you had very busy schedule, uh, definitely a lot, a lot of roles to, to juggle there um, and still try to be part of the conference. Of what you were a part of, were there any highlights or takeaways that, that you gained from the conference? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I have to say I, I was so inspired by our opening keynote. Um, just her her words, um, her presence. Uh, it was just, it was beautiful. Um, and I, I um, can't speak enough um, about impact, um, especially her, um, her, I guess, poem really at the end, right? And the artwork that she shared um, at, at the end of her session, um, just, it was beautiful. I thought it was a great, um, great opening. Um, I think the other part is just knowing um, the amount of work that went into this particular conference. Um, I think 
we can't reiterate enough. Um, I think Charlie, Aaron, and I all said it, you know, this is a conference that was planned twice. Um, and there is a lot of labor of love and a lot of um, probably blood, sweat, and tears that went into, um, you know, the conference happening um, essentially in, in, Two different ways. And, um, and that also means the dedication of presenters who had um, pretty limited time um, really to prepare for some of their semi the semi live um, presentations and the on demand um, recordings. Um, you know, we had um, a lot less time to prepare to get those sessions recorded and um, uploaded into the conference um, platform and that type of stuff. And so, um, you know, there's uh, I would say more than anything, I think it's the background work that went into making this happen. And um, it was very successful given the fairly short amount of time that um, the executive office team and the annual conference planning team um, had to prepare um, and to pull this particular um conference off. And um, so I, I'm super excited um, to know that we that we can do this, um, that if we have to use this type of platform in the future, that we will um, be able to successfully do that as an association. And I think it um, gives broader opportunity to the types of sessions um, that we offer and the types of voices that are um, that are represented in our presentations. And hopefully it's something that we can um, continue to use or continue to consider in the future. I hope that answers your question. I feel like I got a little off topic there. <laughs> oh no, you were on topic. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, I I suppose toward, at the at the end of the the conference, um, and um, I think it was the the, the closing keynote. Um, you um, I think read portions of I don't know what you whether to call is it an open letter or or a post um from Matthew Don Levy um I think that I'm pronouncing um his name correctly um and I'm I'm sure for there were maybe people who weren't present who but who've heard about it since could you talk to us a little bit about about that and and um what that was about and how that came about just to help people understand. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I happened to catch on a social wall post um, in within the conference app um, when I was looking through uh, different posts, um, a very eloquently written um, statement um, by Matthew Dunlevy, who is an advisor at the University of Tennessee in Chattanooga. And it caught my attention um, because it really brought forward in a very, um, I would call it gracious. He was he was calling us out as an, as an association um, with the fact that um, in our virtual space, um, a lot of conversation had to do with a lot of conversations, right? Have to do with, oh, we wish we were in Puerto Rico, wish we were, um, you know, on the beach or we were doing this with a nice drink in hand or something like that. Right. Um, but the fact of the matter is um, Puerto Rico is a, um, as an island that has been ravaged um, economically, um, you know, it's been um, hit with hurricanes and earthquakes and um, higher education is in a state of shambles. Um, and he really brought forward that part of the conversation or sorry, he really brought forward um, those issues in that post Um and also pointing out, we weren't really having those conversations in our conference space. Um, I don't think that there was a single session um, in our virtual space that um, addressed the issues um, of, of uh, the state of higher education in Puerto Rico. Um, those are things that um, 
had we been at the conference, we would be experiencing in person. Um, and he made the point that, you know, we may be crossing um, uh, protesters trying to get to our conference hotels. And these are things that we would be faced with. Um, and these are conversations that we need to be having. Uh, and I wholeheartedly agree. Um, this is not new, really. This is this has been years in the, in the making. Um, this, you know, this is this is not a recent phenomenon in, on the island. Um, and I think it's critical for us to have those conversations, not just about this particular particular annual conference site, but any location um, where we host events, that there are political, cultural, social events that are happening in those spaces. We are a global association. Um, we have to take those things into consideration. Um, you know, at our St. Louis conference a couple years ago, um, and um, the NAACP had put a, uh, had issued a travel ban warning, right, um, for the, for that area, um, actually an area that I had just moved to as well. And those are legitimate concerns that some of our members have um, in terms of their safety um, in that particular situation, but also um, as it, as it relates to the original site of our annual conference, um, we need to be having these critical conversations, right? We need to be learning from the folks on the ground um, in those particular spaces. Um, these are higher education professionals who are dealing with these um, types of concerns uh, firsthand, and they are in some ways successfully navigating those um, those challenges, but they are also um, probably in need of our support and for us to engage um, and to learn both ways, right? And so, um, so Matthew's post, really brought that forward. And um, I believe that post was on Wednesday that I caught that. I had reached out to him. We spoke Thursday morning. I adjusted my um, closing remarks to incorporate um, a statement actually that he kind of rewrote and summarized um, what his post was um, because I had limited time to speak, but I wanted to provide the opportunity. Um, it was the smallest thing that I could do um, but I think it was important. There were 1,100 people that were signed in um, to the conference at that point. And um, to give even just a few minutes to make sure that we take the time to reflect on where we could do better, um, you know, what we missed, really what opportunity we missed and where we can do better and um, really just start to educate ourselves um, about the reality of where we should have been right um, last week um, and the things that we would have been confronting in person and we should have been talking about and we can still be talking about. So I do hope that um, from that, um, we have an opportunity to maybe make it right. I don't know if we can ever make it right, right? But we can make progress and we can do better. And so I hope that this provides us an opportunity to really reconsider or really consider um, how we engage um, in these in these discussions, how we um, consider the events um, and how we incorporate those into our conferences, into our events, and and really be dealing with them in the moment, um, and not. Um, and I don't think it was intentional by any means. Um, again, it was a, a it was a pretty rapid shift, right? Um, and um, but the impacts are real. The impacts are real to the people of the island. Their um, impacts are real to. Um, our colleagues who have connections to the island um, or have loved ones um, that are there uh, because those, these are real issues. And um, I just hope that um, we can continue to, to have these types of conversations and just do better and be better as an association. 
Yeah, and I thought it was powerful for you to do that. And but I wasn't surprised because I think that's something that I appreciate about Nakata is that if there if members have concerns, you know, it's like you know, people always say like ask or say something or uh, let this person know. And within Nakata, like when it gets to the leadership executive office level, it's like, let's address it. Let's have that conversation. And many things have come from those type of conversations. And it's really just someone just being open about it. And Nakata's like, let's, yeah, let's, let's do something with this. And if we can be better as an organization that will affect the global level, let's, let's do it. And even if it's like not even at the global level, if it's at any level, and it's something that needs to be addressed. Definitely, Nakata does that. And um, and yeah, I, I, again, I, I think that it was powerful to do that. I hopefully the eleven hundred uh, folks that were on on the the Zoom during that time appreciate it as well. But I guess let's you know you were talking about challenges, and you know maybe we talk about like your institution because we before we were recording, uh, you were letting us know about how your kids are, are using the internet because they have to do their classes because it's virtual and we know that's kind of been an, an, an issue for uh, students as well what kind of challenges um, have your students at your institution been dealing with and I guess how has your institution been helping to overcome those uh, challenges yeah absolutely I don't think we're unique um, in the fact that um, you know we are dealing with the uh, challenges of being, uh, we're actually hybrid, right? So we have about half of our classes are online half or, or high, in a hybrid format and half are in person. Um, and so the challenges are real um, in terms of students um, feeling disconnected. Uh, the challenges of faculty having to uh, make adjustments to, to their own classes, even in-person classes are, are often um, now having to be um, recorded uh, for online you know, learning for students who may be missing classes we, um, like many other schools, had a spike early um, in COVID cases on campus. Um, and so that really affected, um, you know, the number of students that are in quarantine um, and with contact tracing challenges, all of that type of stuff, right? So, um, so we dealt with that early. We had a spike, a pretty big spike about a month ago, um, but we've been on the downward trend, fortunately, in our community since then. Um, but I would say I, I don't think it's much different. I think that the feelings of isolation are real um, for, for our students. Um, we have limited um, in-person gatherings um, on campus. I think we're still limited under um, 10, you know, 10, 20 students um, in any particular setting. Um, you know, it, so the shift um, for students and having so much stuff online is, is it's just isolating. Um, I think we all feel that way. Right. Um, and um, and so that's real. Um on the flip side, um, I've, I've seen some huge um, benefits too, right? In terms of these of, of our campuses um, figuring out new ways of doing things um, and and new ways of engaging um, students. So we uh, one of the things that our campus has done, um, and I don't I I don't know if other schools are doing something similar, but. Um, we have a care team um, that has expanded um, quite significantly, and they I think they brought in about 50 volunteers um, who are other staff and faculty on campus um, to follow up with students who are in quarantine and really kind of do the, the crisis management um, wellness checks on um, with students who are um, going at, you know, who've gone into quarantine and making sure they have what they they need and, and the support, you know, and the resources um, that we can connect them to. And I think that that has been um, something that is 
is um, important. Uh, it's a lot of work, uh, you know, especially with this spike in numbers um, and having volunteers who are working full time jobs too, um, and spending time calling a couple students and checking in on them, you know, and really trying to navigate um, the challenges of, of quarantine and all the feelings that come along with that. Uh, I think that is, um, it, it goes to show that we care. Um, and uh, I will say that those folks are probably, um, I don't want to say they're underappreciated, <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, they're, they're doing a lot, um, you know, to help, help students in that way. So that's just one, one kind of minor thing. I mean, I think we, uh, it's, you know, there, there's a lot of great stuff happening, obviously, but it, like everywhere else, it's, we're all learning as we do this, right? Um, well, that, that might be a minor thing, but it, it, I think it has a really yeah. huge impact, you know, that they're able to reach out to those students. And, you know, I think students probably really appreciate that because, you know, it's it's crazy that, you know, we have these Zoom meetings uh, with, with students and we just see them on the screen. We don't, you know, we really don't get to have that real interaction like we would in person or be able to see more of them or, you know, be able to see body language or, and things like that. And, you know, and it's, everyone's just impacted so yeah. differently. Yeah. yeah. And I suppose you know, um, we, we've talked a, a little bit about maybe the, the institutional goals for, for your presidency. I'm wondering on a, um, on a personal level, is there any, is there any goals you set or anything that you're particularly looking forward to? I will say, and I shared this quote um, maybe two years ago with the board and council, um, and it's it's a quote from a sermon by Stephen Furtick at Elevation Church. Um, so I'm not trying to <laughs> preach or anything here. I just think it is um, something that I really take into consideration. Um, and I'm probably, I, I probably need to have it in, in front of me to tell you exactly how it reads. But um, basically it says, you know, you can't make sense of um someone's disappointments without understanding their expectations. Um, and I think that's so true um, on our campuses with our students, with Nakata, um, but it comes down to those individual relationships, right? And, um, you know, we, um, when we have members or students who are frustrated with with us as an, as an association or um, with what's happening on campus or whatever the case may be, it's usually because they have expectations, right? And we may not know those expectations um, because we haven't asked <laughs> what their expectations of us are um, or we misunderstand what those expectations are. And so when they are frustrated and those disappointments are real, um, it can catch us off guard, right? So I guess, you know, when we flip it, it's really, for me, understanding um, in every individual or unique um interaction that we have, you know, getting to understand more of what are, what's so-and-so's, you know, this person's expectation of the association? What are they wanting to get um, from Nakata um, at the most micro level? Um, but at the same time, you know, um, as a board, we're also looking at the very high macro level um, of the associ association overall. So what, you know, what's the what are the expectations, you know, that we have of ourselves, that our members, our 15,000 members have of us um, collectively? And are we meeting those expectations? Um, and when there is disappointment, are we um, making those adjustments? Um, and are we responding effectively? And so I think it, it does go back. It, it goes um, even from the smallest things, right, all the way up to the biggest. And so I would say, yeah, institutionally or as an association and structurally, we have, we need to meet those expectations um, or find ways to 
come close to meeting those expectations, right? Um, but really on a personal level, it's understanding where every individual's at, you know, whether it's interacting with a fellow leader, um, you know, whether it is um, a new member, whether it's a prospective member, and again, even back down to our own campus interactions with our students, it's the same, um, making sure that we understand um, their expectations and how we how we can help meet those expectations. Now in your bio, it talked about how you like to travel. So in, I guess one question would be what's been the, like, I guess your most absolute favorite place uh, to travel to. And the second question would be since it's 2020, have you found creative ways to still be able to travel, have some type of engagement? Yeah, that's a great question. Favorite place to travel, hands down, Spain, um, without a doubt. Um, my dad is from Spain. Um, I lived there for a semester while I was in college. Um, have um, All of my dad's family is still um, in, in Spain. And so that is, um, when I'm there, it's like, you know how you just know that that's your that's your place, you know, the smells, the everything. Like when I'm there, it just, it, it's my, it's my other home. My heart is there. I was not born there. My dad was born there, but it's just, it, it's, it's my other home um, through and through. Um, there are still a lot of places I would love to travel. My mom is from Vietnam um, and that's a place I would love to go. My parents actually were there in March. They actually had to cut their trip short because of the pandemic. When um, when the borders here started to close, they were still in Vietnam. And so they um, basically had to hustle back and flew through Japan um, to get back into the States. But um, it was a trip of a lifetime um, for my mom who was born in Vietnam and had to leave. Um, uh, she left basically when Saigon fell the day of. Um, and so um, she hadn't been back since then. And um, it was a trip that she really wanted all of us to go. Um, I have two brothers um, and but we have families and it's really hard to coordinate those types of things with um, kiddos and that type of stuff. Um, but my parents had the chance to go and um, I don't know that she will get to go again. Um, but that is the place I would love to go um, in the future. I know that's not a question you asked, but I'm just telling you that. <laughs> Oh no! I, now I'm like I'm I'm, I'm glad you, you added that in there because one is like we get, we we get to know you a little bit better too, and I'm like I'm adding that to my list that eventually once things clear up, like I I want to go there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I am. Um, yeah, I'm very jealous that they got to go. And her, just my dad said that her, um, her reaction was just so phenomenal. You know, having gone back and um, you know, seeing seeing her home country, you know, after so many years. And, um, uh, and I don't think she, when she left, I don't know that they ever expected that she'd get to go back, right. Her family would ever get to go back. And so that's very powerful, um, you know, for her to be able to return and, um, heal in some ways, right. Um, really to kind of close those, uh, it's very traumatic to have to leave under those circumstances. Um, and for her to leave with peace, um, and happiness, uh, and with that experience. And so, um, I do, hope one day to get to experience her homeland and the, the you know, the um, culture um, of that side of my family. Um, but my 2020 travels, I think the most exotic place that I've been is probably Northeast Iowa, um, which is where my partner's family is from. Um, so cornfields in, in the bluffs of um, the Driftless region of Northeast Iowa. Um, yeah, I, I, we haven't really gotten to travel um, too much, obviously, in 2020. Um, I do take that back. I did get to go to Tampa. I got to go to the two Nakata conferences um, this spring that were held um, yeah. uh, in full. So I did get to go to Springfield, Missouri, um, which is 
Springfield, Missouri, and um, Tampa, Florida. Uh, so I did get to travel a little bit, um, but honestly, since the pandemic really truly hit, uh, Northeast Iowa has been the most exotic place that I have been. <laughs> Well, you, I guess in, in a virtual sense, you've been in many places and uh, in, in a virtual sense, I want to thank you for taking the, the time to chat to myself and Matt. I think this has been really fascinating. It's been great to, to get to know you. Thank you for sharing. It was lovely to hear that, that insight about your, your family in Spain and in Vietnam. Um, it's been great to hear about, you know, what your plans for the presidency. And I think listeners will really have gleaned some insights uh, from this interview. Um, I, as, as a Denver Broncos fan, we didn't even get to discuss Drew Locke, who is a Mizzou grad, <laughs> he's a current quarterback. But, you know, yep. we'll have to, to get you on in, in the future, you know, maybe when the Broncos have a winning record. Um, Cecilia, this has been great. And just thank you again so much for taking the time to chat to us. Awesome. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. It was great to hear from Cecilia there about her plans for her term as NACADA president. And it was also really interesting for me to learn that her partner Rourke coaches or coached some of my favorite players on the current Denver Broncos roster. And coming up, we have a wonderful interview with Ryan Sheckel. Matt and Ryan delivered a fantastic presentation together a few weeks ago at this year's virtual annual NACADA conference. And Matt had also chatted to Ryan at the annual conference in Louisville last year. So this is a follow-up one year on. All right, next up, we have Ryan Shuckle. Ryan has been in academic advising since 2002, working with students from exploratory to the declared, first generation to legacy, and from fine arts to pre-professional health. He also serves in leadership roles at both state and international levels, and his professional interests include advising history, theory, and philosophy, leadership theory, and the intersections between advising and higher education's larger purpose. A graduate of Texas Tech, Ryan's academic background includes studies in human development, public administration, leadership, and higher education administration. He is also a huge pop culture nerd. Ryan, welcome to the podcast, or should I say welcome again to the podcast? Thanks for having me back in in like an official capacity. Um, I was honored to be included uh, in the first uh, first edition of this podcast and I'm I'm really happy to be back. Yeah, so listeners of the show from the very beginning will know you because um, like you said you were on the first episode of Adventures and Advising, but also the first interview on that episode back in January and if we take it further back to October last year so, so 2019, that interview was actually recorded at the Nakata Annual Conference in Louisville. Um, and you were actually the first person I actually interviewed at that conference. So yeah. uh, <laughs> I'm so glad I didn't mess any of this up for you. Could have no, ruined it from the get go. No, it, it it was great. And if anything, like we, we're going full circle now. So oh no, maybe I'll ruin it now. Is that what you're saying? Oh, no pressure. Oh yeah. Well, we can always edit. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> so. We're actually coming off the heels of the annual conference for 2020, the virtual conference. Um, and actually, right before we started recording, we were talking about like the after conference feel. 
Uh, so how are you feeling right now? Well, yeah, it, I was I was saying that um, I don't know if um, our listeners are will be familiar with um, the cinematography concept known as um, the dolly zoom. Uh, it's usually used in like horror films when um, the foreground drops back and the background comes forward. The, the photographer, the cameraman uh, is usually on a dolly and they pull them backwards while the camera zooms. And so it creates this parallax effects. It's, it's just disorienting. Um, and I think there have been conferences, you know, after the conference where I've, you know, really been energized and excited and I don't want to lose that energy. And I feel that way mostly now. Um, but then like literally an hour after we concluded the closing keynote, I had um, a prospective student presentation on Zoom to do. Uh, so like I went like immediately back to work way faster than I ever have before. And that disorienting um, sort of dolly Zoom feeling um, was very abrupt. Um, and I think, you know, that's uh, that's just par for the course for 2020 um, is that we ha- we feel differently uh, and in ways we maybe have never felt. Um, and that if anything, we should reserve judgment um, and observe, be mindful of what these feelings are and how they um, perhaps reveal uh, priorities and values and uh, principles about what it means to do the work that we do. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step guide to starting your podcast today. Absolutely. And I know it's, yeah, it's like you said, it's, it's different for everyone. Uh, some have that advising high and then they kind of have that little crash afterwards. I know for me, usually at in-person conferences, that's how I feel. Um, it's usually after the, the last session, it's like, oh, I'm not going to another session after this. There's not a meetup I'm going to. I'm going straight to the airport because now I need to get home. So then I'm just thinking like, can I make my flight? Um, is it going to get canceled? <laughs> Am I going to get back safely? And then as I'm waiting uh, for to get on board the flight, then I'm just reflecting back on the conference and then enjoying those memories, but then also sat at the same time. And I think that kind of was similar with this virtual conference is as much as like I'm at home watching these sessions and, you know, going to these Zoom rooms for some of these, um, I guess, interactions with, with other Nakata members, it's like... Once that keynote ending keynote was done, I was like, "Oh, the conference is actually over." Okay, I guess I'm back right. to regular life now. Right, and I, you know, I I do trend toward the philosophical um, in almost everything that I I do, and I don't want to over um, emphasize this or belabor the point. But it it was, and I saw this note um, shared a couple of times uh, throughout the conference um, about what our students feel. Um, this was the most abrupt ending to a conference I have ever participated in uh, because of its modality, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I think about students who are and have a who are used to and have a preference for in person learning, mm-hmm. um, in person advising, uh, and just how abrupt the conclusion of those experiences are. It's like a bunch of doors slamming shut. And mm-hmm. if we as advisors 
prefer a more tapered and gentle conclusion to learning and professional engagement. And we're feeling just how significantly quick everything came to a close. Um, then I'd imagine that students, they have that feeling multiple times a day, perhaps in their lives. Um, it's, it, it, if nothing else, it helps uh, identify a bit more with our students and what they're going through right now. And um, especially for those of us who advise entirely online learners, um, what their norm has been and continues to be. So it, it's good for reflection. Um, and it's good to think through what it means for me and what it means for the people in my life. Yeah. And I think you mentioned that with uh, even like the, the live sessions with once the session was over, like once it, once the, the moderator hit end session, like we were all gone. Done. Yeah. And you know, that's one of the things about, um, that I miss most, um, from this, uh, conference experience was how the, um, the engagement, the learning, the thinking continues in between. Um, and in fact, I mean, I've been coming to conferences since 2003. Um, and, uh, and my approach to conferencing certainly has matured. Um, so I know that what I'm looking for in a conference now as an advising administrator, as somebody interested in the theories and philosophies and histories that inform academic advising, where we're going as a profession, I know that I approach conferences differently than maybe mm-hmm. the, the typical uh, listener to this podcast or um, the typical advisor. Um, but I know that those little spaces where people are uh, engaging and talking with each other, um, those are lost. And those were so enriching, no matter what you're looking for in a conference, the chance to go up and talk to the speaker afterward, um, to continue some thoughts with the people you were sitting around uh, in the audience during a session, to see people in passing in hallways, um, to go out after the conference and, and, and share drinks and, and food with people and meet new folks, like all of that social connectivity, while facilitated in some ways, um, was significantly lacking or stunted in some ways because of the virtual platform. And I know higher education is like a lot of things given the opportunity to reconsider itself right now. And what does it mean? What does the college experience mean? What is the product that our institutions uh, are supposed to be delivering on? And um, certainly people have opinions about that. Uh, But I think for those of us who attended this conference, um, we know for certain that that virtual experience is not nearly as enriched and complex as that in-person experience. Yeah, and we'll see what happens with the the Nakata Region conferences. Then we'll see what happens with uh, International Conference as well as the next annual conference in uh, Cincinnati. But I do want to talk about some of the presentations that that you were part of uh, for this conference. But before we do that, I do want to maybe get to know you a little bit better, because I think that'll set up why maybe you did some of these presentations um, at the conference. Sure. Um, but you were mentioning students, and so you work at uh, Texas Tech. Are you all back on campus right now, or? Yeah, so we are in the state of Texas, and uh, it has been a priority of our um, state leadership, of our institutional leadership, Um to continue to deliver the educational experience that students expect um, from institutions of higher education, um, and uh, and and so our the decision was um, that we would have on campus living, that we would have some on campus learning, um, that uh, we would have on campus services, and so that includes staff, 
um, um, providing those services. But we would do so is uh, in as limited and responsible and safe ways that we could. Um, so um, we have been back on campus as an advising office of six um, since the f- middle of August. Our semester started the 24th of August, I believe. I don't know if that's a Monday. I don't even know what day today is, but no. Uh, um, and so we've been back on campus for a little uh, a little under two months um, as an advising office. Students moved back on campus um, in reduced capacities or in our residence halls um, at their normal time. And the goal for our institution was to have 80% of first-year courses have some face-to-face instructional component. Um, and so uh, after that, uh, second year, third year, fourth year coursework courses, I think predominantly online or in a hybrid modality. Um, but yes, uh, there are people on campus. In fact, our visitor center reopened for um, tours of campus. Um, and they just, uh, Fridays are typically pretty large. Uh, and I just got an email saying that this was their first full tour session um, of the year. So yes. And you're actually, uh, you're teaching a course too, right? Yeah, I'm teaching a course online. Um, mm-hmm. The It's a uh, health profession seminar, a sort of a, a pre-professional uh, interdisciplinary um, seminar um, that I've taught multiple times and I've taught entirely online before. But I'm also teaching a first year seminar course um, specifically for pre-nursing students. Um, there are 78 students in that course. Mm-hmm. We are in a classroom of uh, 478 seats. Um, so we're spread out and it is a cavern. Uh, masks are required uh, to enter the room. Um, there are also directional um, signage. So we come in from one side and we exit another. Um, but I was watching a video today um, a, a craft work video uh, from 1970. So if you ever want to talk about industrial <laughs> punk pop stuff. Um, and I was noticing that there, you know, where people are packed into this tiny club in Berlin sitting on and next to each other. And I felt this sense of anxiety yeah. and I was like, Oh, this isn't even now. And I'm worried about people being close to each other. <laughs> and maybe that's because of my classroom experience. I don't know. Um, I'll say this on our campus. Um, Cases among students, I think, in a cumulative sense, are very high. Um, I think it's alarming, and I understand why people would feel that way. Um, but in the six-plus weeks, seven weeks now of this semester, um, the number of cases sort of per week have dropped significantly. Um, that doesn't mitigate the risk. That doesn't um, absolve the decision-making behind it. Uh, but it is something that is happening and I'm trying to be mindful of that. And I guess as an administrator, um, you have your advisors in your office. Um, how are how does everything work? Like in terms of like how are they doing handling everything, and with your role as an administrator to make sure that they're doing well? Right. Well, I I, I told them first and foremost that I was going to be the first one back in the office. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were given some flexibility. Um, uh, in fact, we were given some significant ambiguity uh, as an administrator that I wasn't really happy with. Um, but we were given some flexibility on how we return, when we returned, and ultimately we were given decision-making power on what our priority and preference would be for modalities of advising. Mm-hmm. So I, even though it is, I understand how people could feel that it is a, a questionable decision to have advising staff on campus mm-hmm. when they're doing primarily remote or distance or virtual advising, um, I gave folks time 
to, to move back in, in a way that was comfortable for them. Um, we set in all of our language and our messaging to students uh, that our priority and preference was uh, that we do virtual advising, uh, that their health and well-being is more important than their academic progress to us. We situated that as best we could. Uh, and so, yeah, we're using Blackboard Collaborate Ultra because we're a Blackboard campus uh, for our advising. We have a shortened redirect link um, that students are given as our location in um, what we call Strive. It's driven by Starfish. That's our advising platform. Uh, we're a banner campus. Um, and uh, and so students are receiving information uh, when they call our office, when they visit our website, or when they are contacted by their advisors that we are available virtually. Mm-hmm. And that would be our preference. We're available over the phone. Um, but that if a student prefers to do advising in person, they can negotiate that with their advisor. Now, random question, totally has nothing to do with what we just talked about, but um, Texas Tech has two mascots? Uh, Yeah, so we we were originally the Matadors. Um, And the, I would assume that the original Matador of our institution had a cape because Matadors have capes, Um, that it had a flat brimmed round hat because Matadors sometimes have those. and for a while, um, the Matadors, we were, our, our school song is the Matador song. Um, and so I would have to imagine for a while, the Matadors and that sort of aesthetic um, was the idea behind our, our live human mascot in that era of um, intercollegiate athletics. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, somewhere along the way, mm-hmm. um, a local cartoonist, um, when we were in the Southwest Conference, began drawing... A, a, a character uh, known as Raider Red um, because our mascot had changed um, from the Matador to the Red Raiders. And personally, um, I think a lot of our symbology um, is problematic. Um, we are, uh, we, the state of Texas is a hand signal um, state. So certain institutions have certain hand signals they give. Um, I'm not going to say any of them because I'm not fans of those uh, particular hand mm-hmm. signals. Um, but ours is guns up. Um, so there, that's one uh, problem in the age of school shootings and gun violence. Mm-hmm. Um, but some people assume that the um, red in our name has something to do with the people originally of this area. Um, and it doesn't. Um, our school colors were always red and black. Mm-hmm. And somebody wrote an article, uh, a particularly flowery article about our football team. Um, when we were the Matadors, um, raiding those Raiders in red from the South Plains and beating somebody. I don't even know who it was. Uh, and so there was some uh, upswell. And as our institution changed from a college, a technical college, to a university um, to rebrand ourselves. And the, the students chose the Red Raiders um, because we were red and black, scarlet and black. Um, so uh, Dirk West, local cartoonist, started drawing Raider Red and became beloved. Um and so the students wanted Raider Red as a mascot as well. So Joe Kirk Fulton um, went to the uh, Gator Bowl. I forgot who we played. It might have been the University of Florida. Um, and he rode his horse on the field to lead the team on. And he was wearing a mask. And he was known as the Masked Rider. And so that was um, a, a return to the human mascot. And so we have the Masked Rider and we have Raider Red two mascots at Texas Tech University because everything's bigger in Texas. Right. Of course. So why, why, why just have one mascot when you can right, have exactly. two? Right. It's all about engagement, right? Right. Who knows? Maybe next year you'll have a third mascot. 
Right. I bet everybody was really excited about that history trip down uh, memory lane for Texas Tech University. Well, I was actually fascinated by it because I cool. didn't know that. I just knew there was two, two mascots. mascots. Like, how do you end up with two mascots? I bet you ask any school that has two mascots and they're going to tell you a crazy story. <laughs> <Right>. So. <laughs> <laughs> So clearly you gave a great history lesson on that and the history and theory philosophy have always been interest for you. Um, can you talk about your, your path into advising and where your interest of history, theory and philosophy started? Yeah, I, I was a first generation college student. Um, my uh, birth father, who was always in my life, even after my parents divorced, um, I think the only reason he graduated from high school is because my mom was a junior uh, mm-hmm. and he wanted to stick around. Um uh, my stepdad, um, graduated from high school and immediately joined the Navy. Um, and, uh, and my mom graduated from high school. Um, my sister is three years older than me. And right before her senior year of high school, we moved from South Dakota to Texas. So I didn't get to see her going to college, getting ready for any of that. Um, and if it wasn't for a high school counselor pulling me aside and asking if I want to go to college, I'm not sure if I would have gone to college. Um, but, uh, as a first generation college student, I, I knew that I liked, um, uh, athletics, I played basketball, football, and ran track in high school, and I thought, maybe I'll be a coach. Um, so I came to college uh, as a kinesiology sport management. Um, uh, at the time, it was called exercise sports science major because I thought about coaching, and I didn't know anything about college. I didn't know anything about that, um, that usually most coaches in Texas teach a subject, and that's usually their major, and they get an education minor, and so on. I had no idea what I was doing. Um, I didn't particularly like my intro to exercise sports science class. Um, and I now understand that the faculty member who had just been hired from um, uh, French Canada um, probably didn't expect he'd be teaching a first year seminar. Uh, he probably didn't like Lubbock very much. Um, he was not happy with the class or with the university or anything. It was not a good course. Um, and like a lot of college students, I made a incredibly informed decision and I changed my major uh, because I didn't like one class and I changed it to the class that I liked. And that was human development. Um, and so I got a bachelor's degree in human development, a minor in psychology. Um, I uh, met my wife and her plan um, was to get a teacher certification in English and theater and teach. And she did that much faster than me um, and uh, performed much better academically than me. Um, but eventually um, we came to realize that we both had similar interests in education and uh, so I, um, I, after I graduated with my degree in human development, I found a teaching job um, in the correctional system in a nearby town. Um, and I taught math for two years and I was getting my teacher certification, doing graduate coursework um, and doing some educational psychology, um, educational leadership courses. And I started to realize that if I was going to teach anything, I would prefer to teach cl- subjects I was interested in. I mean, I'm fine with math, but um, I wanted students to be engaged and interested and I wanted myself to be that. And so I, I came Uh, I quit the job teaching math and I came back to get my teacher certificate in history. And during that time, uh, a friend of mine was uh, was advising in our exploratory advising office. Um, And he said, we have this part-time summer advisor job. He's like, I don't know that it'll lead to a full-time job. I don't know, but I know you just quit your job and if you need something. So that was 2002. And so from July of 2002 to December 2002, I was a part-time advisor and part-time student. Um, I eventually completed that certificate in history, essentially a second degree, second undergraduate degree in history along the way. And I think that's definitely where I developed my understanding of history or how to approach historical scholarship. Um, and then, of course, I was advising and higher ed was of interest to me. And so my my master's degree is interdisciplinary um, in higher education, um, public administration and leadership. 
And that's where I started to develop an understanding of theory, um, especially in graduate school, but also because professionally I was looking for that identity of, you know, what is the thing about me as an advisor? I was learning that advising was definitely where I wanted to spend my time, that educational role, um, maybe with less grading, less lesson planning, less classroom management. Um, so I started to get interested in advising. I took an advising position in our school of art and moved into an advising office of one, which changed my perspective on advising. And, uh, and that's when I started my graduate degree, got into theory, ran across the theory, philosophy and history, advising community. Um, and, you know, it's interesting to me that those worlds are intertwined structurally in Nakata, um, because as I'm coming to understand them, their overlap is really fascinating the history of theory, the history of philosophy, the philosophies of history and theory and so on. Those are all really interesting, but they're also, um, I don't know that they always need to be lumped together the way that they are. I'm just thinking right now, like I should have asked you these questions the first time I interviewed you. (laughs) Hey, it's an organic evolving process. And if we don't accept that about our lives and how we live them, um, we, we're always going to be disappointed. So embrace, uh, the newness, embrace the experience. I feel this is this is a uh, this is my Tosh uh, Tosh point oh web redemption I'm doing right now. You're good, it's good. <laughs> but it's it, now I feel like uh, having that background like a lot of makes sense now, you know, because I was always interested. Like he's so into like the the history theory. Like where is this coming from? So I mean, it's fascinating, right? You know, you were mentioning in Akata, and you've been in, in academic advice since 2002. When did you start attending Nakata conferences or become a member of Nakata? Well, so yeah, the um, the first six months of my advising experience, I was part-time, sort of um, unofficially not f- going to be um, full-time. And then somebody left and an advising pos- a full-time position came open. And I was, I was asked by the director of that office at the time, Dr. Elizabeth Teagan, if I was interested in the full-time job, I was like, I'm interested in the benefits and I'm interested in the pay. I'm interested in all of it. Uh, so I became a full-time academic advisor, January, 2003. Um, and one of the things I can say about, um, my director at the time, uh, is she had a commitment to the professional identity of academic advising and academic advisors that I think in a lot of cases, um, was, and maybe even continues to be somewhat ahead of its time. It's hard to say that. I mean, having done this for as long as I have, I feel like we've come a long way. So I don't want to ever diminish um, the growth of our field. Uh, But Dr. Elizabeth Teagan was committed to supporting advisors financially um, and keeping advisors in positions. She understood what the cost was to students and to institutions to have advisor burnout and turnover. Um, She was restructuring that advising center. They were using peer and part-time advisor models. Students would come in and not know which advisor they would see. And um, she understood what that meant. Um, So she had a a great handle on how to uh, take a professional approach to Mm -hmm. staffing and advising center. And part of that identity was you you participated in professional activity. So I never knew different. Uh, and that was, um, in, in retrospect, um, significant to my development professionally, um, and as an advisor, um, but also to my engagement with Akata. All I know is Dallas, 2003, I gave, I was a co-presenter with her at a pre-conference session. I'd been advising for less than a year. Well, a little over a year, but full-time less than a year. Um, I gave a first generation college presentation cause we had just written a grant to start a first generation college program in our office. Um, and then I was a co-presenter on, um, we had developed a website for students to submit schedules for approval to advisors to facilitate our numbers issue. Uh, so basically a, a, re- a registration technology session. I gave 
I was part of three presentations at the first conference I ever attended. And of course it was in Dallas, which is only four and a half. If you're going really fast, four hours from here. Um, and I didn't know any better. Uh, and I, I think that also has influenced the way that I approach, um, the professional opportunities that advisors have in front of them. Because if someone had told me that it was a big deal, if someone had told me that it was worthy of recognition and that it was something to be proud of, um, then maybe I might've been a little bit less willing or comfortable with it. So yeah, I, it, it has always been a part of advising um, for me and I'm glad for that. Uh, and it's the approach that I took working uh, as an advising administrator for the last five years. It's on our position descriptions um, as an essential job function, mm-hmm. essential job function. Number six is professional activity, which is not on everybody's, you know, at, at other institutions. Uh, I will say when I first started in academic mm-hmm. advising, this is 2013, like my director at the time, Ray Navarro was all about Nakata. And it was a great thing because two weeks into me starting, he sent me to the region nine conference. Um, and so like, for me, like, when I started and Nakata, like they just go hand in hand and I don't know any different. Right. And for those who do know different, um, I, I don't want to in any way ever communicate that, that that's a um, one down position or a lesser position. You, right. Your perspectives on professional organizations, not having been around them um, or been comfortable with them or whatever, it are they're so valuable for organizations in general don't improve by having the same people there all the time, pushing their same perspectives and agendas the whole time. Um, right. So if you feel like an outsider and you're wondering, how do I connect, connect from that perspective, because perspectives, especially perspectives of um, non-traditional, non-majority um, membership, you know, mm-hmm. if, if you've got um, a perspective that is not being spoken, it might be the most valuable perspective. Um, so I just want to encourage those who didn't come at it the way that Matt or I have come at it as just a default mode of our work um, to not feel like there isn't value in what you're doing or how you're approaching things. Yeah, yeah having all those different perspectives, different viewpoints. I mean, it, it all plays together. Now, as an administrator, like you went from an academic advisor to an administrator. What was that like changing those roles? Well, first, uh, it was my third attempt to be an administrator. I was the academic advisor for our school of art and advising a a population of between four and 500 students. Um, And I think because of my tenure in that role and because people had left in other positions, I had taken on a lot of other responsibilities. I was involved in um, the actual entry of our schedule of courses and that became the planning of our curricula. Um, I got involved in graduate student recruiting because I was doing undergraduate student recruiting and then the admissions process. Um, so I was doing a lot and uh, we had a new director hired. I was on the search committee for the director, which was weird hiring your own boss. Um, but it, you know, it changed things, uh, for me professionally and personally. Um, and that new director asked me at a performance evaluation that I had to demand actually happen in person because I was just being given evaluations before to sign. <clears throat> she asked, um, what I thought my next step was. And that was 2014, I want to say. Uh, and I knew, I mean, one, um, my wife uh, also works for the university. She's also in advising. That wasn't our plan, but that's been a part <laughs> of how I, uh, my approach to advising has been shaped. Um, we have kids who are in schools here locally, and I'm not necessarily personally looking to go other places. So in, initially, when she asked a question about what my next step was, she was asking, like, how long are we going to be able to keep you? Uh, because she was wondering, did the School of Art have a place 
for someone like me in their structure and they didn't. And so I was talking about the advising centers that were more centralized in their approach that had like an advising administrator role, an assistant director or director role or whatever. And I'd been on campus then at that point for long enough to know them well. I'd left one of them in our exploratory advising center. Uh, and I was looking around at the people in them and I was like, it's really unlikely that two of the three jobs that are advising administrator jobs that I would be interested in are going to turn over. And the one that might likely be open, I was like, I don't know that I have any particular affinity with those students. So I was like, I don't know, maybe one of those, um, one of them came open that I didn't expect. And I applied and I was a finalist and I wasn't hired. And that, you know, the ego hit and all that stuff was difficult or whatever, but I understood it. I knew who they hired and it made sense. Um, and uh, then another one opened, the one that I did expect would open. And I thought, well, I might as well, you know, I've already done this once and I think I see where my career tra trajectory is going. Administration definitely is interested to, to me working on a team again after having been on a team of advisors and then being an advising office of one. I was interested in going back to working with teams. So I applied, didn't even get an interview because the dean, the associate dean supervising the search wanted somebody from off campus. They wanted to go external. I learned that later. So I was like, well, two out of three, I guess I'm going to settle in here. I was going to, I was teaching the first year seminar in the school of art at the time. And I was like, maybe I'll focus on retention efforts and um, buckling down. And then a new advisor administrator position opened in pre-health. And, uh, and that's, that was it. And so that was to uh, 2015. Um, so it's been five years and that transition, I think, you know, having been an advisor, um, as a, being an advising administrator was extremely beneficial for advisors for, I, because they had someone who understood what it meant to do their work, um, and to be a primary role advisor. Um, I think they also frankly have benefited from having someone who's been connected to a professional activity and through Nakata. Um, but I realized that my understanding of advising while valuable was not an understanding of administration. And I think probably my first two and a half to three years as an advising administrator was figuring out how my personal strengths and styles and preferences and approaches um, fit the expectations and also the actual work to do. Um, and so um, we also had a lot of um, logistical change. We've moved offices twice in five years. Um, we've had personnel change some of their own choice and some not that has been challenging. And then 2020 has given us the pandemic. Uh, and so I continue to learn. Um, and I know that the role of an academic advising administrator is so incredibly valuable when it is informed by an understanding of academic advising. Yeah, definitely valuable, but also like with job titles, your assistant director of pre-professional health careers, having an assistant director title can be the same title at multiple institutions, but vastly different. Oh, yes. So uh, with, with your right. position, what, what as an assistant director, what, what's your day-to-day uh, -day position entail? Well, so one, um, supervising a uh, staff of five frontline primary role advisors. Um, because our institution navigated the Fair Labor Standards Act change um, the way that it did, I'll leave it at that. Um, <laughs> our advising positions um, went from being exempt positions to non-exempt positions. So recruiting, especially travel for recruiting, um, we travel heavily in the state of Texas, particularly in the spring semester. Um, it's not workable during advising season, much less for non-exempt positions. So I'm in, ex in an exempt position, so I do most of the recruiting as well. Um, uh, 
So um, I meet regularly with our staff, um, individually, one-on-one, um, and also in teams. Um, I supervise all of our project development, all of our programming development. Um, I do all of our recruiting. Um, I am also our sort of external and internal liaison with uh, departments and offices and point of contact for anybody who has pre-health um, concerns, needs, issues um, from a non-student perspective. Um, and then, of course, um, making sure that we meet the vision set for us as an office of being uh, the first choice for pre-health students in the state and region uh, and also being a model for excellence in our field. Quite a busy uh, job you got there. I will say this. Um I was previously reporting to an assistant vice provost Mm -hmm. and I was hired under um, the assistant associate full model Mm -hmm. Um, that has since changed. And um, for a while dealing with that change, um, I would introduce myself as assistant director for pre-professional health careers and say, I don't really assist anybody. That's just the title they gave me when they hired me. I'm really glad to be where I am. Um, We've moved spaces in the last 18 months, and we are on the same floor as another centralized advising office, our exploratory advising office. Administratively report through the provost office, um, and we are a university-wide program, which, again, shapes the way I approach the work that I do. Um, And I'm glad for all of those things that I'm in. Title um, now is less important to me um, than autonomy. Mm -hmm. Um, and I am really, really grateful for the role I'm given to make decisions about how I do the work that I do. Nicely put with that. So let's circle back to Nakata for the virtual conference and your presentation. So you had three of them that you were doing, and one of them was uh, the slow mm-hmm. advisor. Can you talk more about uh, yeah. the premise of that one? Yeah. So for those who didn't uh, tune in or haven't caught it in the other places, it's really ironic that 2020 is the year um, that slow finally got out. Uh, I've been, I mean, I was an advising, uh, as I said, an advising office of one, um, and feeling super pressed for time. Um, and being frustrated with that sense of, I don't have space to do the things that I want to do. I don't have the time to even think about how I would close gaps or improve something or whatever. Um, I, you know, I know I'm the person who talks about theory, philosophy, and history, but I, in 2013, I went to the library. I was like, there's gotta be somebody who's already looked at this. Um, I know are often in my experience, people have, um, uh, praised me or complimented me or rewarded me for my ideas. But one of the things I know, if I'm thinking about it, somebody else has probably already thought about it. And I got so fed up and not being able to solve the problem of time that I went to the library and I found John Tomlinson's book, um, the culture of speed. Uh, and the uh, coming of immediacy. And that was 2013, 2014. I talked to you about, you know, I was exploring other professional possibilities. I was going to graduate school, but I just felt so pressed for time. We had a a kid uh, along the way. Um, And I took this job in 2015 as an advising administrator and 2016 Bergen Siebers, um, the slow professor was published. And I was like, Yes, I want to get back to this. So 2016, I had written a proposal for, I guess it was a 2017 annual conference. It got rejected. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I reworked it and submitted it for 2018 and it got rejected. Um, And then I submitted it in 2019 for 2020 and everything slowed down in its weird way, slowed down and sped up um, and it got accepted. Um, And it's, uh, it's been a journey with it, but the slow movement and what slow means for academic advising um, especially when we feel pressed for time, uh, is the central 
premise of it. Um, ultimately, my conclusion, not to spoil it for anybody, is that it's not about slow and fast. It's about this ambiguity and this willingness to consider when can I slow down and when is slow effective and best and when is fast effective and best and how to find that balance between the two normative ambiguity as Vostal refers to it. And uh, you had a, you know, a couple of references on, I mean, a few books that you referenced in there, uh, but two of them, um, cause I had watched yours cause you did it for one of the, the theory, philosophy and history. Environment. Yes. And so you had in praise of slowness and the slow professor. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of the questions that came about from uh, your presentation at the virtual conference was like, where do I, what would be a book to start with? Right. And you had suggested uh, in praise of slowness, correct? Yeah. Carl Honoré's um, sort of summary of the slow movement, how it's expressed in multiple disciplines, um, is often referred to as the the Bible of slow or the slow manifesto. Um, and so it's a great place to start, particularly if you need a interdisciplinary or uh, multiple perspectives on a concept. Um, he talks about the slow food movement, talks about the slow uh, governance or sit slow, uh, talks about slow um, in music and arts, talks about slow in relationships. And and so like there's a lot of ways to look at the slow movement through um, uh, in praise of slowness. Um, but then, yes, um, the, the slow professor, if you need something a little bit more digestible, something a little bit more um, ready to operationalize and put into practice. Um, and if being in the higher ed context helps, um, I certainly would recommend that uh, for somebody who needs um a little bit faster approach to slow, if that makes any sense. And of course, if uh, anyone did attend the virtual conference, you can check out Ryan's presentation on the slow advisor, I think for the next 45 days, I think they said something like that. (laughs) And uh, one of the suggestions you had in there, um, you know, not to have too many spoilers of that presentation, but uh, you had mentioned not, um, you know, that multitasking is does not help. Um, And there was a book I read and I don't know if it was something you had mentioned or if I read it somewhere else, but it was like the book was called The Myth of Multitasking. Um, And in that, they talk about that, you know, yeah, multitasking is is a myth. Like you can only do one thing at a time. And I realized that I was always trying, like especially working remote, like I would just try to get one email done, but then another email came and then I would stop to read that. And then it's like, oh, now my appointment's here. Okay. Oh, and then now I have this team's message and now my boss needs this. And then I'm like an hour later, I still haven't finished that first email I was going to do. And it's like, if we really just just stop and complete the tasks that we're on, then move on to something else. And so like for me, I've learned to turn off the notifications, uh, especially for teams. It's like, I'll get to it, get to it. Um, You know, if it's a priority, like I, it doesn't necessarily have to be do, done like absolutely right now. Right. Well, and I, I'll, I, that's what I, that's why I was talking about how it's weird that 2020 um, has in, affected us the way that it has, has been as disruptive as it has because not being on campus for those of us who were, were not, or still not on campus, it felt slow. It felt like our mm-hmm. towns and cities slowed down because people were hopefully self quarantining and doing that. And so there were the elements of our world, that slowed down. And then there were elements of our world that sped up or they multiplied. And at one point we early in the, our move off campus in March and April, I was receiving notifications, communications um, on seven different channels from essentially the same level of our organization. That's insanity. Um, it, teams, uh, Blackboard Collaborate Ultra chats, uh, text messaging, email, 
phone calls. I was like, it's coming at me from every direction. Could we just pick one? That's not as much a slow principle as just an, a sanity principle. Um, so this time that we find ourselves in, um, I think the slow movement has some value for considering. Um, and, and I think that when we think about the concept of multitasking, um, I'm sure there are programmers and computer people who will tell you there are things going on in your computer, um, at the same time that are multiple, but those are subroutines, right? And I don't know that there is much in the work of an academic advisor that is equivalent to a subroutine. Now there is in the life of a human, uh, you know, standing up and stretching and moving, you know, and just being a little bit physically active can be a subroutine that you can do while also maybe responding to something. Um, I, I would say self-care needs to be a standard subroutine and that should be happening perhaps multiple or multitasking like that. But I, yeah, there's a switching cost. Um, there's an efficiency cost when trying to do things uh, at the same time. And that kind of time density is something we talk about in my presentation. And speaking of another presentation, you had one time traveling cyborg wizards, the very real dangers of academic advising work. Talk to me about that one. Well, so I had been um, before, obviously this is all before the pandemic and and it might've been two years ago. Um, I'm such a nerd um, and I love incorporating. You don't say. I love incorporating. Um, these narrative and um, story-based concepts. I love finding connections. We're a Clifton Strengths or Strengths Quest campus, and one of my strengths is connectedness. I, I see the interrelationship relatively easy. I probably invent interrelationships uh, where they don't exist, but um, and so I'm always finding or evaluating connections between things. And I was just feeling that as an advisor, I um, I recognized the temporality of our work. Um, not in that it is temporary, but meaning that we shift time, um, time speeds up, time slows down. We go to the past, we go to the future to plan, we deal with the present. Um, and I think it was actually time travel that started it. Um, but I can't not think in, uh, trilogies. Maybe that's the star Wars nerd in me. Um, and I was like, but we're also sort of mechanized. We're like cyborgs. We're connected to technologies so much. Like it was one day when the internet was out. And basically everybody comes into the hallway like they were unplugged from the matrix and they're like bleary eyed and what do we do? And it took us time to figure out how to be human again uh, because we were disconnected from the machine. Um, And that's where that cyborg thing came from. But I was looking for that third piece to complement it, that Triforce, um, uh, if you will. And, and it's the, the notion that sometimes people think of what we do in advising as magical. And in a very real world, non-fantasy sense, the people who do magic, illusionists and so on, um, they know, they know the reality of it. A lot of times it's ugly. A lot of times it's not special. A lot of times it's just some sort of weird contortion um, or an ability to hide something that people don't recognize. And so there have been times as an advisor where I felt that disconnect between someone thinking what I did was remarkable and me knowing it's online in the catalog it's not special arcane knowledge. It's so the idea of magicians uh, and, and the wizard stuff also popped in there. And uh, we, I was walking around Louisville um, during that conference and I saw David Gray from the UK. Um, and we were talking about just crazy ideas, the crazy ideas that we have about the work that we do. Where did rock and roll come from? Where did star Wars come from in my presentation previously? Um, and I was like, well, I've got this other thing, 
bouncing around in my head and I was looking for someone to at least if nothing else confirm that I wasn't way off base. Uh, so if you want to blame anybody, you can da- blame David Gray. And all I'll say with that presentation is a uh, rock beats laser. And uh, if anyone wants to know what that's yeah. about, if you did attend the virtual conference session or the conference, check out the on-demand session for Ryan's presentation on that. Everybody knows that rock beats laser, even if they've never put it in those terms. Right. <laughs> And I, I will say in your presentation, I mean, this doesn't really spoil anything, but you had a, a Doctor Who reference in there. Um, and so it has nothing to do with the presentation. I just want to say that the you had the seventh Doctor yeah. um, on there, which is my favorite uh, classic Doctor. Oh, sweet. I'm glad. I, uh, as somebody who has not quite um, expanded into that space like I have in others, uh, I'm glad that um, a, a real Whovian is happy with my efforts. Well, I wouldn't say I'm like a real Whovian. Like... Uh... I haven't seen like all the episodes. Um, <laughs> my first, my first introduction to Doctor Who was a tenth Doctor, so David Tennant, mm-hmm. and then from there I went back to uh, Christopher Eccleston for uh, the previous Doctor, and then of course then kind of then went forward to Matt Smith, and then kind of saw some of the um, my first introduction to classic Who was actually the seventh Doctor. So, and I don't know if it was just something about the actor Sylvester McCoy, just how how he acted, or just because he had the the cool umbrella or the the question marks on <laughs> on his vest. But um, yeah, just found a connection. Just well, I'll say that you just said I don't know that I'm a real Whovian, and then you just rattled off the names of the actors who played <laughs> five different Doctors. So like, just own it, man. Just own it. I, I still can't because I mean, there's always going to be someone that's going to know more than I do or care okay. about it more than I do. I mean, okay. I don't, I don't live and breathe it. I'll just say sure. that. I understand. <laughs> but um, we would talk about the other presentation, but if you want to catch that one, it, it was, it was on the Umbrella Academy. You can check that one out as well. It was Matt's presentation. No, it was Ryan's presentation that I, that I, <laughs> he let me part to help, help him with. And, and I truly appreciate it. <laughs> we were a good team. Yes. I, I thought it went very well. Uh, well, I guess we'll see what the evals say. Yeah, we'll find out. <laughs> but uh, we're out of time, Ryan. Um, I think we could talk for hours, hours on end on this stuff. Um, but the recording has to come to an end. Oh, <laughs> no, you know, I, one of the things um, I'm so glad to have lived through this time mm-hmm. um, because even though it has been disruptive and even though it has been um, so odd uh, and also genuinely um, important outside of the work that we do, like I, I think this um, every day and, and every time and era is important, but what we are learning about ourselves and how we are going to, um, work with each other and how we are going to live alongside each other. Um, I, we're learning important things. And I certainly hope that um, the, the young people are uh, paying attention, uh, that they're listening and that they're looking, that they're reserving judgment and being mindful. Um, but uh, I, one of the things that I'm glad for um, is that during this time, we've been asked to reflect. Mm-hmm. And uh, this podcast asked people uh, to reflect on their best conference takeaway. Um, and I'd never thought about that before. I mean, I've been to sessions and I've learned things that I might incorporate in my practice. But by having that asked now at this stage of my life, uh, professionally and personally, um, I've, I found an answer that I think um, is really valuable. And that is my best conference takeaway um, was that the conference can keep going. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this podcast will end. Uh, this particular podcast will end. Uh, but this conversation doesn't have to between us or between our listeners. Um, I'm available on Twitter at RD Shekel. 
um, R-D-S-C-H-E-C-K-E-L. You can find me online really easily. Um, you can find most people online, which is kind of creepy. But, um, hit me up if you prefer Facebook or LinkedIn um, or if you just want to call, um, you know, just let me know. Uh, I'd be happy to talk about these things uh, because it is more valuable for me to have these conversations than it is to do a presentation. Um, and if anything else, I want what's best for me. Right. <laughs> well said. And it is creepy what you can find on the internet. So, so <laughs> wait, yeah. I think we're talking about something else now. Yeah. <laughs> Take care, Ryan. Thanks so much, Matt. And uh, enjoy this. Thanks, Ryan, for that interview. Always a pleasure getting to chat with you about advising approaches as well as pop culture. So, all right, who is up next? Coming up, we have an interview with Quentin Alexander. Quentin is a fantastic guy. I have been fortunate to get to know him a little bit over the past few years. And in this interview, you'll hear us discuss his path into advising, his new role. And you'll also hear from and a little bit about his dogs, Oscar and Felix. And of course, his new hobby, winemaking. All right, next up, we have Quinn Alexander, who is a senior director of advising for undergraduate education at George Mason University. Before assuming this position, he was an associate professor in counselor education in the College of Education and Human Services at Longwood University and coordinator of the College Counseling and Student Affairs track. Previously, he held a tenure track assistant professor position in counselor education at Virginia Commonwealth University from 2011 to 2015. He holds a BA in therapeutic recreation from UNC Chapel Hill, an MED in special education and literacy also from UNC Chapel Hill, an MED in community and agency counseling from North Carolina State University, and a PhD in counselor education and supervision from Virginia Tech University. He specializes in multicultural issues in advising, counseling, and student affairs, and has taught courses in introduction to the counseling profession, theories in counseling, career counseling and development, multicultural counseling, internship in clinical mental health counseling, group counseling, college student development services, and supervision and administration in clinical mental health and higher education settings. Quentin developed and co-coordinated an academic success coaching program at Longwood University that focused on the psychosocial, academic, and emotional needs of first-generation, low-income, and racial-ethnic minority students. Research interests include college adjustments for students of color and LGBTQ populations on college campuses, first-generation college students, collaboration between counseling and academic advising, and the convergence of multiple identities in college student populations. He serves as a reviewer for multiple academic journals and is on the Publications Advisory Board for the Nakata Global Academic Advising Community, where he has also completed the Emerging Leaders Program and is the incoming chairperson for the advising community on first-generation students. Quentin, welcome to the podcast. Ah, thank you. Thank you for having me. This sounds like going to be a fun podcast. <laughs> we we think so. We're delighted to have the opportunity to talk to you. Um, obviously, know you from various Nakata events, but that is quite the accomplished bio that Matt just read <laughs> out. And may, we're, there's lots to delve into, but we know that you obviously took on a new position started back in August. Maybe you could talk listeners through how you found your way into advising. 
Okay, so this is this is kind of a windy path, and it's kind of it's, it's interesting. So I, I think I've always been in positions where I was working with or advising students, and particularly students from backgrounds where they were either low income students or racial ethnic minority students. So prior to advising, I was a middle school teacher. And I taught middle school for 13, 14 years in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And I found myself more interested in student stories when I was in the hallway about how they were doing in school, um, issues they were having. And so after my second year in special education, I had just had it because middle school students are cantankerous enough. Um, but to deal with them when they had behavioral issues, which those are the students I dealt with, those that had behavioral issues, that became a real challenge for me. And I was in my mid 20s. So it was really one of those things that was, um, it was, it was, it was kind of challenging for me. So I, I literally, and I realized that people I worked with were not really interested in students. I think they were kind of there for the paycheck. Um, and so I, in the end, was packed my bags, <laughs> right? Principal comes in for the new school year. At the end of the year, he was a new principal and wanted to know why my boxes were packed. And I was like, because I'm leaving. I'm I'm done with this. I'll go work at McDonald's. I'll do something else. And so um, later that summer, he and the superintendent contacted me and said, we have a job for you. And it was a blank slate, sort of, you know, these minority students are not doing well in our system and we need to know why. And so what I developed was a program very similar to what academic advising is. And at the time, I didn't know what that was, but I did know that for 13 years, I really enjoyed doing that and trying to figure out, well, how do I fit that into what I want to do long term? Uh, being an educator for me was not sustainable um, for multiple political reasons. And so I found my way into a master's program in community agency counseling. And I worked uh, for a psychologist in Durham, North Carolina for three years. And I headed up her um, educational issues unit. So I worked with students and parents uh, who were working on transitions into back into school for, for various reasons. And of course, you know, as in most counseling fields, that was kind of a burnout for me. Kind of sat in limbo um, and really happened upon the PhD program at Virginia Tech when I was visiting a friend who coached there. So fast forward through that. So my house in North Carolina, moved to Virginia Tech, uh, Blacksburg, Virginia, get into this great PhD program. And they say, you can research anything you want to for your dissertation as long as you can tie it into counseling. And I had a graduate internship <clears throat> in an office that dealt with um, students who were STEM students, but they were minority students. So we provide additional support for them. So I'll say that was my first, the first time that I actually worked in an advising capacity still not knowing it was advising at the time, um, with college students. And I was very intrigued with the experiences that these students were having that were beyond the academic experience, um, how they were engaging a college campus, what it meant to them. And I had a um, office mate. And this office mate had attended a historically Black college in um, North Carolina. And so we had something in common and they were both from North Carolina. And one day she walked in, it was probably the fourth, a fifth week of classes. And so you have to know where Blacksburg, Virginia is. It's a very rural Southwest Virginia and it's very white. <laughs> um, and so she, and she had gone to a historically black college and she just 
walked in and sort of freaked out one day. She goes, I can't deal with this. I just, this, this is crazy. And I was like, what are you talking about? And so we sat down and we had a long conversation about her experience as a black female on a predominantly white campus and what that felt like. And at that point, I decided I wanted to research this transition because when I was in graduate school back in North Carolina 20 years earlier, I heard the same sort of conversation, but I was engaged in this conversation. So lots of my high school friends went to historically black colleges in North Carolina. I went to the University of North Carolina, which was dominantly all white. When we were in grad school together at UNC, we often experienced the classroom differently. And we often experience our advising situations differently. And so I learned a lot from them about what their experience was and what my experience was. And so that I said, you know, if, if she's experienced this 20 years later, there's something to that, right? So I did my dissertation on the transition of, of Black women into predominantly white institutions for grad school. <clears throat> and in hindsight, though it was not focused on advising, when I look back at the actual data, there was a lot in there that was inherent in what I would call probably culturally insensitive advising. Uh, after I finished grad school, I went on to take a faculty position at uh, VCU in Richmond. I was there for four years, then transitioned to Longwood, where I developed the College Council Student Affairs track, which was centered on these same sort of experiences. So while there, because I taught grad school, I didn't get to interact with many undergrads. Um, until one day I was in the student union and I overheard these four or five gentlemen having a conversation about their experience in the classroom and all kinds of stuff that was happening to them on campus. I also knew at the time that I was the only black male tenure line professor on that campus and I felt an obligation to have a conversation with them. And when I did, I found out these students were facing academic suspension or academic probation. They had been to this office, that office, and no one was really, really helping them, right? And so I would say that was how I really got into advising. It was back in 2015. I fast forward two years of doing research, uh, looking at stats, um, trying to navigate, help these students navigate student services, hitting dead ends, hitting some of the same roadblocks they hit. Uh, parallel to that was my initial involvement with Nakata, which started at VCU back in 2012-ish. Um, and what I learned, you know, going to the different conferences and becoming more engaged. So I said, I think I can apply this information to help these students out. And so I did. And I, I did become a part of the University Diversity Council. And I asked that they send me to the Nakata Institute to work on a program to help to help develop this program to work with these students. And so um, that's how the program started that you talked about in my bio. I uh, coordinated that program for three years, but the more I did that program, the more it took the front seat of what I wanted to do and why I felt I was on a college campus than did teaching in the graduate program. So I started probably two years ago, uh, just looking for positions um, realizing that a lot of positions required you to be an academic advisor. I was a faculty advisor for nine years and I almost felt like I was hitting a dead end because I said, maybe it's just too late for me, right? Maybe, maybe I, I'm not sure, but I know I have a lot to offer somewhere. And so we were, I applied for several jobs uh, that were related to student services, academic advising. I'd forgotten I'd applied, honestly, I'd forgotten I'd applied for the job at George Mason. So we then went into lockdown here because of COVID. It was probably the middle of March. 
And I'm literally sitting here doing some paperwork and my phone rings and I'm looking, I was like, I don't know anyone in the 703 area code, but maybe I better answer this. So I answered it and it was the office administrator from undergraduate education at George Mason University saying, well, I know this is, seems like it's really far away from when you applied, but we finally got through all the applications and the COVID adjustment and we'd like you to interview for this job. So I was ecstatic from that point. I was like, I, I will get this job. That was my mantra because I was so burnt out being a professor. I was like, I will get this job. I'll do everything I need to do to get this job because this is what I want to do. And so, um, you know, two or three interviews later and a presentation later and I was offered the job is exciting because it's a new it was a new position at Mason. They've never had anyone to really coordinate academic advising. And it is the largest public institution in the state of Virginia it has the largest student population. So that is my long story about my windy road into this senior director position for academic advising at George Mason University. So I've been there for now two and a half months. And it's been great. That's a fascinating story, though. I mean, to to think about, though, like, you know, when you talked about you were like in the cafeteria, right? And you just hear the conversation. It's like, had you not been there, had those students not been there. I mean, I feel like you would still be doing great things and, and helping. But like to see kind of where that path went based off that one conversation that 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 you heard. Yeah. But uh, now that you are at George Mason, um, now you kind of get to create something from scratch in a sense, because it's never been done there. What what other things are you going to be working on uh, with your new role at George Mason? Okay, so that is a loaded question. Um, <laughs> we got time. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. So I, I guess this takes me back to the presentation I was asked to give as a finalist for the job. And the prompt was, how do you support a decentralized academic advising model from a centralized space? In other words, my position was centralized. I work in the Office of Undergraduate Education, and I report to the Associate Provost of Undergraduate Education. However, all of the advising units are within the nine schools of colleges, plus some special populations, and they all have different advising structures and models. So a lot of what I've I've done with this job, but I mean, the first thing I wanted to do, because I, I did not... Um, I didn't understand the structure of what was going on. I had to do a lot of digging and interviewing. So I did a SWOT analysis, or and I'm still in the middle of doing a SWOT analysis, uh, determining what the strengths, the weaknesses, the opportunities, and the threats are for advising. And so that has taken about a two-month period to do, um, to really kind of do a deep dive into what does this look like. So that meant meeting with the what we call the advising liaisons, uh, who's kind of like the coordinator for advising in the different um, colleges. And so I've met with each one of them individually, plus key stakeholders that people told me I should talk to. And I've had conversations with them about, you know, what does advising look like in your unit? Um, how do students experience advising in this unit? What sort of support do you have? Um, what sort of advising models do you go by? What's your involvement with professional development? And what sort of central coordination of advising has, has there happened? Well, that was an open book and a loaded question, right? <laughs> so after interviewing, you know, 15, 20 people, and I'll say these interviews last anywhere between an hour and two hours, I began to gather information about what was happening. Um, I will say in the process, 
and before I was hired, there was um, the university engaged in a what they call a student experience redesign um, situation where they had an external come in company come in. And what showed up across the board a lot of places was advising, right? So what was not necessarily what was bad, but what showed up where students felt like their experience wasn't the best. And it was advising. I will say after reading the report multiple times, it wasn't because the advising was bad. Okay, after speaking with all the units, they're doing incredibly fantastic things, but no one knew about it, (laughs) you know, Um, and I, I think that in looking at that particular report, everything where everywhere, every place where students sort of complained per se had to do with structures surrounding advising. So these are things that advisors had no control over. Advisors don't plan orientation. So because you don't get to spend enough time with your advisor doing orientation, it's not the fault of the advisor. It is how the orientation schedule is set up. Uh, the same thing with registration, you know, when you go to degree audit, um, you know, how do you figure out which courses you're supposed to take? Do your four year plan? All these things were centered on a system that the university brought in. It's a great system. Um, we're actually updating it right now, but all advisors are not required to use it. And so as you can see, like there were a lot of structures around advising that would make advising an inconsistent experience for students. And so after you know dealing with the different um, liaisons and hearing their stories, I was like, they're doing a lot of amazing things. And people just don't know they're doing a lot of amazing things. But I did also see a lot of inconsistencies across the board, right? Um, and so part of my job in the first two months is just figuring out the lay of the land and the culture. And what I found is that each school, well, I won't say each, but I identified three different advising structures across the nine schools that they were, you know, 100% professional advising in some schools. Some schools had 100% faculty advising, and then some had a shared model, which, you know, so so things are kind of everywhere. And that autonomy, I really appreciate I think people thought it was going to come in and want the changers. And I said, no, I appreciate the autonomy. Now we got to figure out how does this work so that students get what they need. And so that's been a lot of the conversations that are going on. Throw in there, based on that student, um, that the report from the external company, somehow we got to the place where someone thought that we also needed a coaching program. And I'm not sure how they made the leap from one to the other. I'm not even going to dig into that. I'm not sure how they made that leap because the data just did not point to it. Um, anyway, it's there. And so trying to figure out how to how these two things coexist and complement each other in a way that's beneficial to students. That's been one of the biggest pieces is working with the, with the director of that program, who is fantastic. And helping, but helping them to understand what academic advising is. And I think that the academic community did not have a clear understanding of what academic advising is, nor what academic advisors do. So education has been a huge piece of working with this other director and the assumptions that were made about what advising wasn't doing based on a report that didn't dig into the context. So that's been really challenging. 
um, in a positive way. And I say in a positive way because I like educating people on academic advising. Okay. And so when you say to me that, well, the coach is going to provide a whole list, a holistic experience for the students. I was like, well, guess what? The advisors already do that. And here's how they do that. But no one really asks. There was just an assumption that they, they didn't do it. And I will say not all schools and colleges offer that holistic approach. I would say, I would point out two that do not. But once again, it went back to the structure surrounding that. And that is the disproportionate ratios for advisor to students. I have in some schools advisors who advise up to a thousand students by themselves. So there's a structure there that says, yeah, advising needs way, way, way more support. So now I'm in that position where I can advocate for these things. And that's what's really exciting about this job is that the foundation's there, but now I get to work with and collaborate with these advisors in the academic community to develop what I think is going to be a stellar advising program that's consistent and provides a quality experience for students across all units. You have achieved an incredible survey uh, and and I suppose the beginnings of, of a real kind of strategic plan by the sounds of things in just two and a half months Quentin so kudos for that and I can hear the excitement that's in your voice in terms of, of making this work so um, I'm, I'm fascinated to to hear it sounds like it, it will be brilliant I, I'm fascinated to see how it develops. Before we go any further, though, um, I, I think it would be remiss and our listeners will want to know. We heard a little bit of barking in the background uh, there. C- can you tell us uh, a little bit about the, the dog? Because I, I know when listeners hear that, they'll want to know who, who that is. So those are my two Bernese mountain dogs. They are one's name is Oscar and one's one name is Felix. So like the odd couple, and they are definitely the odd couple. One's very much anytime someone comes by, they're coming to see him. That's why he was barking because the officers at the front have the doors closed. But someone walks by and he's going to go and find out who it is. And then Felix, who will run the other way. <laughs> so that's them. They're they're um, probably a little bit annoyed because I closed the office doors and they're not getting attention. But Oscar would be lying here right beside my feet if he could. So, yeah, we've had them probably one's seven years old and one's eight years old. And they're just, they're fantastic. They're fantastic pups. So, yeah, they they will add a little bit of volume to our, our process today. <laughs> our president in Ireland actually has two Burby's Mountain Dogs as well, uh, Broad and Sheeta, and they are superstars in Ireland. So um, I definitely anyone listening in Ireland will be delighted to hear that uh, you have two yourself. Um, well, who are, who are more important or who are, who's the most popular, the dogs or the president? Oh, for for us, um, a little a little bit of both. Um, our our president is um, he's a he's a poet and a philosopher, oh. and uh, he he is quite something. He's also known in Ireland because there's a photo of him queuing up to use or lining up. Uh, I, I guess um, what we use the word queue, but lining up to use an ATM machine. And he he get he gets in line. He doesn't feel that he has to go in in front of people. So he he is very popular. But I think the dogs they have their own Twitter account. They have their own Instagram account. Wow. They they have become yeah they, they they're well known in Ireland. That's point. fantastic. <laughs> Do they have the check mark 
I don't. That's a good question, Matt. That that I'm 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 gonna I'm gonna check that one out and see. Do they do they have the check mark? Quentin, do your dogs have an Instagram account? They do not have an Instagram account. <laughs> they should. <laughs> they do appear on our Instagram and Facebook accounts quite often, though. So <laughs> you can say they do. <laughs> so Quentin, we are recording this on Friday, the 9th of October, and it is. The day after the Nakata virtual conference, um, the fir- first time the annual conference was mm-hmm. done in, in a virtual format. I suppose before we delve into you know the um, the, the meat and potatoes of your uh, your presentations in it, what was your experience like of the conference mm-hmm. as an as as an attendee? It was it was interesting. It was, I was, you know, I was a little bit apprehensive about it at first because I think a lot of that has to do with I've been on Zoom since March and I was so looking forward to one going to Puerto Rico. That's the first thing. So it was the first big, big letdown. But, um, you know, I'm glad we're not there now considering what's going on. Um, and number two, I was looking forward to seeing people at met. So that's like one of the times of the year where I get excited because I'm going to a conference. Because it's one of the few conferences I go to where I know people, I'm excited to see them, and you do things with them after the conference is over. So I missed that part of the conference. I do think it was very well done, um, considering the numbers of um, the number of presentations, the number of attendees over 2,000 coordinate all that, how you um, opt into your sessions, all that. I, I thought it was good. And I think that. Nakata did a good job of keeping as much of the fun that we have in conferences in that, such as the trivia night, which I won, by the way. Um, <laughs> um, the, the trivia night, um, <laughs> meet and greets with your advisor community. So I, I found that to be pretty refreshing. Um, what was probably the most frustrating, and this is not a Nakata thing, this is the virtual conference thing, is all those great conversations you have either before a session or after a session, right? Where th- those sessions continue into the hallway. So I just remember um, a lot of us last year meeting after a presentation of oh, the pre-conference that me and Loxley and Erica and Chantalea did. And after it was like four or five of us just stayed there. We're like, okay, I guess I'm not going to go to the session because we're still talking about this. And we were so engaged and we ended up going to lunch and have a lunch conversation over it. And that led us to kind of rethink which sessions we were going to in the afternoon because we were so inspired by that. So it was a great, it was a great conference. I'll be ready for it to be back face to face. But I thought Nakata did a good job every step of the way. So, yeah. Yeah, no, definitely about the, the conversations afterwards. I mean, because that's a lot of times we're exchanging the business cards. You get to ask those follow-up questions to the, uh, the the presenter or presenters. And with this one, there was some of that Q&A time with some of the live sessions. But like once it was done, I was like, all right, bye, leave session. And, and everyone <laughs> right. was like, oh, guess I'm moving on to the next thing. Um, yeah. But yeah, like you said, it's not a Nakata thing. It's it's, it's just something with the virtual conference, how, how things go. Uh, can you talk mm-hmm. about, because you were also presenting at the conference. Can you talk about what you were presenting on? Yeah. So so I did a pre-conference with uh, Loxley Debs, Erica Brown, Meredith, and Chantalia Johns. Um, we did a pre-conference on creating a culture of diversity, equity, and inclusion in academic advising, which was a, it was a fun session to do. 
Um, and we focus on just exactly that. What does diversity look like in advising? Um, how can you become more inclusive? And how do you cre- create equity in, in services that you deliver? And we, I will say that we we did breakout rooms during that time, which was kind of scary because I've never done breakout rooms on my end. I've never participated in them. But the conversations within, in the room were so full of energy and excitement. And when we came back, it felt like we, it did feel like we were at the real conference face to face. And people were very thankful that this topic came up, that we had a pre-conference on it. We've gotten emails from a couple afterwards wanting us to, to work with them further. Um, so, you know, I, I think that's a, a topic that is an ongoing topic. Of course, it is a, it, it's been something that Nakata has been looking at for the past four or five years. <clears throat> and just exactly how do we engage, you know, uh, a diverse membership in a way that they really feel welcome and feel a sense of belonging? And how, what does that look like for us as advisors? How do we project that onto our advising practices? And so we talked a lot about that. We gave a lot of pointers and tips. Uh, we used a lot of case studies of things that we actually witnessed and experienced. And, and, and I think the audience appreciated that these were just not trite, made-up case studies. They were actual things that happened. And we talked through, you know, kind of with the way we, we, we worded it, we would give them a scenario. And we say and we put them into a say, now, if you were to experience this with the student, what would you say? Or what or how would you approach the professor that displayed microaggressive behavior towards one of your advisees? You run into them in the cafeteria, you start discussing this. What do you say in the conversation? So it gave them very practical experience in a small group setting. We went to the breakout rooms to really kind of work through that in a vulnerable way, because they said, it's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to say, I don't know where I would start. And eventually, if someone said, I don't know where I'd start, someone else would chime in and go, well, maybe you could do this, you know? And so it was just great to have those really authentic and sincere conversations and for people to leave with practical practical knowledge, right? Even if they are what I call experts in, you know, diversity, educate, diversity equity, and inclusion, they still left with something. If they were beginners, this is all new and novice to them. They left with a starting point and with resources in order to go afterwards. So that was one that we did. And then, so I, you mentioned the program that I started at Longwood. And so we actually did, Erica Brown Mayers and I did a session on how do you develop a program like that? And it was centered on developing, you know, this, this sort of programming for first generation low-income students who are racial ethnic minority students of multiple identities that converge when they're experiencing academic difficulty, because that's basically why we started the program. And so it was nice to, and not a long enough session, it was a concurrent. (laughs) We were now saying that could have been a pre-conference workshop, right? (laughs) Um, it It was exciting to see people want to start programs like this on their campus, and at the same time, it was sad to see that we need to start programs like this on our campuses, right? Where these students can feel a sense of belonging, where they can engage, where they can learn skills they need to learn without feeling marginalized because they don't know them, right? And so that was that was a great conference, uh, a great a great session to have. And I've had you know multiple people write and for resources. 
a couple said you should turn this into a pre-conference workshop where we can come in and actually start to work on a plan. So that was exciting. So both of my, both of my sessions were dealing with diversity, inclusion, and equity. Uh, one in the more practical sense of this is what we've done. These are the results we've seen. And the other is basically how do you globally integrate this into your academic advising practices? Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I think I'm unsurprised to hear that they went so well and that you've had people following up already to get more information and to say they wanted a longer session because I've seen you've presented previous conferences. I know um, you are more than capable. I suppose, Quinton, one of the things I'd be interested in for you as as an attendee, were there any takeaways for you from any of the sessions you attended at the the conference? Any anything you anything new you learned? Yeah, I did. So uh, the one of the sessions that sticks out the most to me was one that dealt with developing advisor portfolios. Um, and so I, I'm pretty picky about what sessions I go to because I want them to, I want to go not just because I'm interested, but because it develops me professionally. And so in my current role, we're, we're looking at how to retain academic advisors at our university because there is no career ladder for them right now. And so we're working with the human resources department to develop a career ladder for academic advisors. And part of that is going to be developing criteria for how people will advance from one level to the next level. And so that session was so incredibly helpful because I was like, wow, here's a way that, that, that you can really document what you're doing as you're going through your, your years of experience. Because a lot of times what happens is people don't annually, you know, document or update their res- resumes or CVs. And it talked about different ways that you could create portfolios, you know, centered on your professional development, uh, furthering your education, um, student outcomes, that sort of stuff. So that was exciting uh, to learn about. And the other one, there was, I went to one, I forget the exact name of it, but that dealt with assessment in, in, um, in academic advising. And of course, I'm dealing with that a lot right now because I'm developing an assessment plan, so a program evaluation for academic advising, so that right now the only measure, ballot measure that they have is an exit survey for graduating seniors. Well, does it help me to know what your first year experience is like when you're graduating seniors? So we're developing student learning outcomes for each of the four years that students are there and then how do we evaluate those on an ongoing basis that gives us rolling data? So that session was really good and helped me really connect how I might use assessment as a metric for evaluations at the end of the year for my academic advisors that they can utilize in their portfolios to work towards their career advancement. So like I said, I was very intentional about some of the sessions I went to, and, and those are two that stuck out the most to me. And it's uh, when you mentioned like the the portfolio and then you're mentioning like resume CV and like depending on what type of position someone's applying for, it's like, what do you include in that resume or CV? What do you exclude? And I remember I attended one session um, like a few years ago and the presenter basically said like, you know, if you just have like one starting document that is kind of like the living document that you just put everything on. Then you can just like make a copy of that and then add or take out what you need to. And then cool. Now you can submit that for whatever position you're applying for. Yeah, that, that is very true because I started. So in, in academia, if you're a professor, 
you keep what's called a curriculum vita. So it's, it, it's a long document. My, my curriculum vita was 29 pages, okay, because it deals with every presentation you've done, every publication, every, I mean, the whole nine yards. A resume, I had the hardest time translating that into a resume that captured the essence of what I could do, mm-hmm. right? And so it was really hard for me as I was applying for advising jobs to really help the resume reader understand how my counseling skills, my skills as a faculty advisor, how do those translate into a senior director of advising role, right? Mm-hmm. And eventually I went to, I went, even though I taught career counseling, I went to a career services center and they sat down and really helped me to do that. And they said, now that you've done this, this needs to be a living document. So every time you learn a new skill, every time you have a different responsibility, you go in and you put that in in blue or red or whatever, you know, <laughs> and put the date. And so I talk to my advisors. They do such great things. And I'm thinking, wow, this person would be great as an assistant director of advising in their unit. However, they don't have this documented. I need for them to document this. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. Like keeping that that living document is, is something. I think it also professionalizes advising, right? So it's not just that we, and I think that's that, that's an issue with the culture of advising on a lot of college campuses, is that people don't see us as professionals. Um, but this is one way to professionalize it through professional development and those sorts of things. So excited to see that growth span across the, across what's happening. Absolutely. I think um, really solid um, advice there. And uh, Quentin, I know that you have another Nakata web event coming up, which I think came out of a, an article that you did, which was advising black male students in 2020 and beyond. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so that that is um, exciting. It's going to be exciting to, to do this. So this came out of a conversation some of us were having about just the experiences we were having as black males on our college campuses with regards to what's going on in our nation right now. And a lot of that being, you know, the killing of, of black and brown men and women, police brutality at the hands at, at the hands of, of, of often white police officers and what that felt like. So for us, it felt very heavy, right? To go back to campus, to have these conversations, to feel paranoid around your white peers and, and, and colleagues who may not necessarily ascribe to necessarily your same political beliefs, or the fact that this is really happening. And I said, well, if this is how we feel as adults who are able to engage and manage this a little bit better, I wonder how our Black students feel, our Black males, particularly because they, most of them were home because it was right around the time the shutdowns happened that all this stuff was happening. So they're seeing this man being killed in front of them on live TV. That's when it hit me. I was like, I wonder how these students are experiencing this. They're at home by themselves. They have their families, but most of them came from racial, ethnic background neighborhoods. What does that feel like for them when they come back in the fall and transition into this very white environment on the campus where I was and their engagement with people and that sort of stuff? And so we wanted to talk about that. And each one of us had an area, especially that we dealt with. So you'll see that kind of evolve. In the, in the webinar, I, I deal a lot with black male identity and what that looks like in terms of how we experience black males on campus and how that's different than what an advisor may uh, see as identity for them and how do those two collide and how do they cohabitate? So how do we facilitate 
allowing these black males the space to tell their stories, to experience what they experience, so that it informs us on how we advise them. So I'm excited about that. Yeah. And so again, like Colin said, this has been recorded on October 9th. So depending on when this episode gets posted, yeah. <laughs> uh, that webinar may have already passed or it might be upcoming. But if you are registered for it, uh, even if you hear about this, uh, listen to this podcast after it's already posted, if you registered for it, you get a link that's good for yeah. a couple months. Yeah. So you'll be able to check it out. Um, so, I mean, sounds like a fascinating webinar. Um, I'm signed up for it. So I look forward to uh, watching that and learning Ooh. from it. Now, speaking of Nakata, um, you were also part of the Emerging Leaders Program. Uh, that was the 2016, 2018, 2016 yeah. to 2018 cohort. That's correct. So I think that was the year before I started in it. Uh-huh. Can you talk about a little bit about your experience in EOP and uh, what advice you may give Nakata members that might be interested, but on the fence of applying either as a mentor or an emerging leader? Yeah. So it, it was interesting. I, I really enjoyed my time in the program. Um, I think the mentorship piece was the biggest piece of that, right? My mentor was Kathy Sent, who is that... Um, Johns Hopkins University. And um, she really provided me with a lot of grounding in terms of what she knew I was capable of doing, but I didn't necessarily feel I was capable of doing. So I kind of doubted myself a lot of times about advising and and things I would do. And, and, and so I was really interested in research. So they really took an interest in helping me to bring a lot of my research to fruition. And so I, I would say to anyone who wants to do it, it's important because you need to understand the structure of leadership in Nakata. It's not a linear process. (laughs) And it's something I know that, that, that Nakata is working on because we've talked about it, but understanding the things you need to do to assume certain leadership positions is critically important. And it encourages you to get engaged on all levels. Right. And I would say for anyone who, um, it's on the fence that you need to go and submit the application because it was probably one of the most ex- most positive experiences I've had in the leadership development in any program I've been in. Because I really think I learned skills that were applicable to my leadership within that particular uh, within 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 Nakata. And for those who have the experience that can share their experiences that want to be mentors. Um, my biggest advice would be to make sure that you have the time to do it and that you have the, the, the right interest in why you want to do it. Um, I want to be a mentor, but I'm probably two years out from that because I just started a new position that's taken a lot of my time. So I know that I won't be able to formally mentor people, but I do informally mentor a lot of my colleagues in Nakata about how to become involved. I think you act as a mentor in a myriad different ways, Quentin. I think you're uh, quite an inspiration to a lot of people involved in advising. So uh, I certainly, anytime I have interacted with you, I feel like I've learned something. One of the things, though, moving away from uh, advising for just a moment, I that I know a new project, another new project that you've taken on is winemaking. <laughs> Ah, my Facebook tells on me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. How is that process going? So it's interesting. It's interesting how I got into the process. A friend of mine in D.C. posted a picture one day about his winemaking process. I saw this whole setup. I was like, that's interesting. So I messaged it. I sent him a Facebook messenger. I said, so how long have you been doing that? He goes, this is my first 
time doing it. Is it hard? Not really. How do you do this? Gave me the website. So I ordered this kit back in May. And let's see, it's October now and I just got started. <laughs> it sort of sat in my dining room for a while because everything else took precedence. And finally I was like, I need to open this box and get started. And so what was interesting about it is like it looked exciting to do, but the directions were not necessarily the most clear, right? And so I was like, what does this thing do? How do I put this together? But then I finally Googled a video and a video walked me through it. So I would say, if you're going to do it, find a video that walks you through it. And that was great. So I um, almost thought I botched this batch of wine because you're supposed to add um, yeast, right? At a certain time. Well, instead of adding the yeast, I added the yeast accelerator, I think it was. And I was like, oh, since all this is just gone to waste now. And so I did go back and add the yeast and then I started doing research. <laughs> they said, yes, it's that's okay. It just kind of speeds up the process. So um, now I'm just waiting. It's a lot of waiting because once you finish one step, it's wait seven to 10 days. And then I finished that step. And then I was I had to siphon the wine into another decanter and it's now fermenting the second fermentation. That's another 10 to 12 days. And then I will siphon it back into another decanter. That's another five to seven days. And then I'll bottle wine and it will rest for three months and then I can drink it. <laughs> so in the pro- and when that finishes, I'll start another set of wine. So it's exciting. Um, and once you get past the first stage, first two stages, it's not too problematic problematic at all yeah so it's trial and error and go on youtube go on google and that's how a lot of us find the answers for things um because sometimes like here are the steps and it's like this is confusing it's like if you ever build um furniture from ikea you know yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah and and i I can say it was was some great self-care during this time it gave me something different to do not related to work, not related to life in general. Just I'm going to make some wine. Yeah. And one that takes less time is if you make your own beers. I had a friend of mine that you know did that, but he had to put it in his closet in a dark space for like a week. But he gave me something ah. to try. And I'm like, this is actually pretty good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but Quentin, um, we could talk for, I know we were planning for another 10 minutes of this, but uh, I will admit to listeners, I was late uh, to this session. Uh, so I was like, sometimes some of our students, but uh, I do apologize for that. I will definitely have to have you on again, but this has been a fun interview. It's great catching up with you. Um, I know both of us wish we could have uh, seen you in person, uh, but yeah. maybe that'll end up being uh, maybe the International Conference in Athens or Cincinnati uh, at the annual. Yeah. Definitely Cincinnati. Yeah, I've been looking at tickets for Greece, so I'm hoping that that happens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, ho- fing- fingers crossed on that one. And this has been really fantastic, Quentin. I think listeners will have taken a lot away from it. And thank you once again. Really appreciate you taking the time to chat to Matt and myself. Thank you, guys. What a great interview with Quentin. That interview was months in the making. It was just trying to have our schedules aligned, and we finally made it happen. And we have one more interview left. Call him. Who is it with? And Bingham, who is from the University of Southampton, and she is also very involved in UK advising and tutoring, UCAT. You may have heard us mention them on the podcast before. They do fantastic work. And Anne is always great fun to chat to. Uh, She's an integral part of UCAT, and I've really seen her 
go out of her way to make people feel welcome and to help people out. So it was really wonderful to have the opportunity to chat to her. All right, next up, we have Dr. Ann Bingham, who is a senior teaching fellow at the Center for Higher Education Practice at the University of Southampton with a background in the physical sciences and obtained her PhD from the University of Southampton in 2002, teaching on a range of courses at a variety of institutions. Anne's roles encompass leadership, mentoring, staff development before moving into academic development. With a passion for lifelong learning, Anne continues to maintain her record of continuing professional development and as part of her role in CHEP, Anne has developed a CPD program for academic staff mapping each activity to UK PSF dimensions. Anne is also involved in developing training materials for the personal academic tutoring community at Southampton University. In addition to her academic development role, Anne's professional interests encompass the international student experience and cultural differences in higher ed and personal academic tutoring. She is a senior fellow of the Higher Education Academy, a fellow of the Staff and Educational Development Association, a member of NACADA and ALD and HE, and a founding member of UCAT, where she holds the position of Vice Chair, Community Engagement, where she recently received the Recognized Leader in Advising Award. And welcome to the podcast. Hi, welcome. It's lovely to be here with you both. We're delighted to have the opportunity to get to speak to you, I suppose, in this kind of long form format in terms of a, a podcast. And it's I, I uh, and, and Matt as well, we're familiar with you and your work a little bit. But maybe for listeners, I think what can always be nice is to hear how you came to, to be involved in higher ed and y- your work. Oh, uh, do you know, guys, this is this is such a story in a way. Um, I'm a non-traditional student, so I left school with no qualifications Uh, I was a mature student by the time I decided I wanted to do something with education. I went into the sciences. I was a female, first generation, as I said, mature. Um, So I ticked all those boxes at a time when people didn't really understand that those boxes existed. And I went through my BSc and then I moved universities. I went to Southampton to do my PhD had a great experience. All of that was fantastic. Um, but one of the things that I really struggled with was the fact that nobody seemed, I wasn't a traditional student. Nobody seemed to know what to do with me. It wasn't that they didn't care, you know, um, personal tutoring, things like that. They just didn't understand that my needs really were quite different. Um, I kind of felt that that could be better. There could be a a different way of of this. So I started to look at personal tutoring and to explore a little bit more. And I came across a text um, by one Wendy Gates Troxell, who I didn't know. I'd never heard of NACADA. UCAT was a long, long way in the future. And I read this and it was kind of a bit of an eye opener. I thought people are dealing with this. All right, it's in the States, but the principles are the same, you know? And that's where my interest started. And then I moved, I left science and I went into the education side of things at a different institution. 
got involved, very much got involved in what was happening with student support and how that manifested itself in different institutions for different groups of people. And so that's what I did. That was my, my focus. Somehow I'd found my niche. And then I spent the next 10 years, I suppose, um, developing different interventions for different types of students. It's, it's been a blast, really. And so when I was reading your bio, like it talked about mentoring staff development. And I was thinking like how true true that is, because I saw a quote uh, from a couple of years ago. Well, when I was looking at uh, some stuff yesterday, it was a quote from a couple of years ago. And it said that Anne is an incredible human being and with a sharp mind and a big heart. And Anne has demonstrated and imparted a huge amount of knowledge and experience in my time of working with her and offered advice and guidance, which has helped me to develop within my role. And anyone looking for best practice on supporting student retention and achievement should look no further than Anne. So it's not really a, a, a question that I have, but more of a statement. And, you know, we're recording this um, in oct- early October. It's 7 a.m. my time and probably one of the earliest interviews I've done. And when I read that quote uh, last night, I thought to myself, like, I can't wait to get up in the morning and get to talk with Anne. <laughs> uh, I think I, th- I just think one of the things about it is when you do find your 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 niche. I mean, it took me a long time. I mean, I'm, you know, I didn't start in education until I was nearly 30, you know, and I'd, as I said, I'd come through quite a torrid school experience. Um, so getting into that, there was a lot of nervousness, a lot of anxiety about, am, should I be here? Am I allowed to be here? You know, why am, why am I here? Um, and I just thought that if you could get people right at the beginning, whether they were staff or whether they were students, and say, yes, you should be here, and get people to give themselves permission to be where they are in life, you know? And I just found that 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 just became a passion for me, you know? Um, And obviously through, I mean, Matt and Colm, I met you both at a Nakada conference last year <laughs> for the very first time. It was an amazing experience. But these friendships and these shared experiences that we have, it doesn't matter that we're in different countries and all three of us are. Um, it doesn't matter because the human experience is always just that. You know, it's about making people feel that they're in the right place at that time. And that's what I love about this role. And I think that's exactly it. You've hit the nail on the head there. That sense of belonging is so important for students and for staff. And if an institution is to truly function in, and, you know, we ensure the best possible experience for everybody, then that sense of belonging is really important. And I think both NACADA and UCAT do a really good job because I, I'm an outsider to, to both in, in ways. NACADA is a global community, but, um, you know, the, the majority of members were based I and mean, it's growing, but primarily in the United States. So when I came into it, you know, that was the the, I, I was a little bit of an outsider, the same with UCAT. And yet I've felt at home within both institutions. And Matt is a huge part of that. You're a huge part of that. There's so many people involved. But I suppose I, I, I was interested in 
delving a little bit more into what you talked about, the fact that we are in three different countries and maybe the, the language can be a little bit different in terms of what we use. So for listeners, we have a lot of listeners around the world in terms of personal tutoring and in terms of academic advising. Could you talk a little bit um, around maybe, um, you know, are, are, are there differences within the UK system? What do we mean when we talk about personal tutoring? Okay, so personal tutoring in let let me deal first of all with the um the issue of the terminology that we use um academic advising in the us personal tutoring in the uk we can use those almost interchangeably so we talk about faculty um as being part of a department whereas faculty are the staff in the us system and apart from that there's not very much difference we have different models in the UK, okay? And this is adapting to the very rapidly changing demographic that we have. Um, certainly, in the culture of advising has changed considerably, um, especially if we look at the last 50 years, where at one time, you know, higher education in the UK was quite an elitist thing. You know, you went to university, you went to Cambridge, you went to Oxford, you went to St. Andrews. And, you know, your personal tutor talked to you about your academic progress, where you up to with your reading, what are you doing? And because the students then, I suppose, had less of the pastoral problems that we identify today. And I think this is where uh, personal tutoring in the UK has moved because with the massification of higher education in the UK, the widening access, you know, low participation neighbourhoods, um, black minority ethnics, those all that, those new students who are coming in, it's a big change in demographic. If you bring in a new if, if the demographic changes, then the problems that the students have change. And that's a challenge not just for the students, but for the, the staff themselves. And this is one of the reasons I moved into academic development, because I think to give the students a really, really good experience, you need to have the staff support and the staff need to be supported in order to deliver that experience. So, yes, we all say how much we we um we support our students but i think it's really important that we support our staff too to be able to do that and that's one I, I love southampton university for that it's part of their big strategic plan is this academic support project that they're doing um and you know i've come into that project as part of the personal academic tutoring training program and it just makes you feel like you've got a place. You know, we're right at the beginning of this process, but, you know, you can see that we're going to be able to do this development over, t over the next couple of months, and it's, it's going to be good because a lot of staff, I think, are given these roles without an awful lot of support in some institutions. Yeah, it's great that you have a lot of the support. I can imagine how excited it might be, especially since we're talking about it's at the beginning of the process. So it's kind of like, you know, everyone can have a seat at the table and really be able to kind of chime in and kind of really build this from scratch. Um, so I'm excited to see how everything progresses there. Now, um, 
to kind of go along with uh, more of like the clarification, like in your bio, we read that you developed a CBD program for academic staff mapping um, at UKPSF. So for those who don't know, what is CPD and UKPSF and how would you explain staff mapping? Okay, so this this was a really exciting project for me because what we find, and I'm sure this is the same globally, is that staff want to engage in professional development, but very often we don't have the time and there are always more important demands. You know, your, your line manager is demanding research output. Somebody else needs you to write a grant proposal and your students are hammering on your door and you're marking and you're teaching and you're prepping. And it's really difficult. And I find that we often put our own development needs at the back of that list. And so what I wanted to do, I wanted to create a CPD program, so a continuing professional development program that was kind of relevant to the sort of work that we were doing on campus. So I don't know, let's say, for example, um, Colm said to me, I know there's some developments out there around assessment and feedback, and but I don't know what's going on and I don't have time to do all this um, additional research. And then maybe we would put a program on or a workshop on to say, hey, guys, this is the latest thinking. And one of the things we have here in the UK is the Higher Education Academy. Um, it's now called Advanced HE, but they accredit HE professionals. So I have a senior fellowship of this organisation. So one of the things that, that you do, you, you map against the UKPSF, which is the Professional Standards Framework. And this is, um, so you address competencies and things like that. Now, a lot of institutions expect their academics to go um, to get that accreditation. And it's time consuming. It's a big application. And so what I thought I could do is map the CPD workshops to those competencies in the framework and let people sort of get killed two birds with one stone almost. So you can do the workshop, you get the development you need. Then when you come to write your application, you've got some evidence there to show that you've engaged in that practice. So the at the institution, when we developed the framework, we mapped every workshop to the, those competencies. Um, and you'll see that we do that at the UCAT conference um, all the sessions are mapped against competencies. And, of course, I've just attended my first NACADA um, virtual conference, um, and I, I noticed that they did exactly the same. So, you know, it's it's that mapping sort of – it allows you to develop your own portfolio of professional development and keep a record of it. Yeah, I think that mapping is really important because it does allow for the professionalization of advising or tutoring and it, it does allow you to going forward whether you are making applications whether you're putting a cv or resume together to to have a framework so kudos to to you on, on putting that together and one of the other things matt mentioned to you in your bio which i suppose jumped out at, at me because I, I share a similar interest was around the international student experience and, and cultural differences in higher ed education 
Um, I'd be interested in hearing about your interest in that, how that came about, and and maybe uh, some of the experiences of international students either at your own institution or in the UK. Yeah, this was when I was doing the when I first started doing the advising role. Um, I I think I mentioned I was looking for different interventions for different types of students to try and sort of personalise the experience for everybody. Um, we have an organisation, or we had an organisation here called the Office of Independent Adjudicators. So if a student had an appeal or um, a complaint against the university that they didn't feel the university had addressed, they could go to the OIA and say, can you look at this institution for me? I don't think I've been treated very fairly. And it became apparent that some of our international students, our international students were actually raising more, a disproportionate number of these issues than other students, which obviously alerts you to the fact there's a problem. Um, And I did a little bit of research and went to the OIA and got their figures and found that this was actually not just us. This was a a UK-wide thing. So if somebody presents you with that sort of thing, you want to know why. So I started doing some research around... Um, the international student experience. It was. It could. It had the potential to be such a, ma- a massive project. So what I did, I narrowed down the field a little bit, and I looked at um, non-European students who were doing their master's degree at the institution I was working at at the time. And what I did, we devised a, um, a piece of research that measured their expectations and then map that against their experience and we measured the gap between the two and that gave us this dissatisfaction and then we you know that developed and the second phase of that project was to then talk to the tutors who were looking after those students and saying what are your expectations of these students and what are your um experiences of these students what happens when you start teaching them and again we found this massive gap and there's a lot of sort of myths and stereotypes and all these things came to the fore but it wasn't rocket science when you broke it down to its component parts there were issues that students had sort of pre-arrival visas, money, finance, all those sorts of things. There was the cultural aspect that they had. um, You know, the food was very different. The climate was very different. Um, We had different customs and, you know, different cultural uh, customs. They would sometimes turn up very, very early for a, a party or something and then wonder why there was nobody there. And, you know, it was because our cultures were different. But the most important for me was finding the difference in their expectations and their experiences of their, of working with their academic tutors and working with their peers. Group work was alien to some of them. Um, tutors were saying, you know, I've got these students, they won't engage in the group work. So we go back to the students and say, why don't you engage in the group work? Well, we don't know what we're supposed to do in the group work and my English isn't very good, and I'm concerned about, you know, what if I say something wrong? And they've come from cultures where sometimes it's a sort of very 
directive in terms that they're expected to um, follow the example set by their tutor. Critical thinking isn't a huge thing for some of them. For others, critical thinking was a massive thing. And so it, it wasn't rocket science. Sorting all that out wasn't, wasn't difficult. We put, we put programs together, actually directed at the tutors. What I found in the past is if you put an intervention in place and you, you talk to the students and say, this is what you expect and this is what you do, that's great. And you have to do the same thing every year with every new cohort of students. If you can get the tutors the right training so they get it right, they can explain that to their tutors every year. And we did narrow the gap considerably. And we've got some, we had some good good figures to to show that we were doing that. Um, but yeah, that that's that's how my interest in cultural cultural differences in academia started. Those both the pastoral side, but the academic side in particular. There are very very many different ways of learning, and as many different ways of teaching. Oh, absolutely. And how are things now um, with with your institution, with how COVID has impacted your students, international students? How are things going right now? We've got a lot of anxious students. You know, we've also got a lot of anxious staff. Um, but one really one uplifting thing for me, so an experience I had recently, we had the at the university we had a festival of learning, a one day celebration of all things to do. And we had a couple of student groups came in and talked to us. They led the workshops. They were asking us similar questions that the, what we were asking them. And I think what we found was the, the anxieties and the issues and the things about working online, inviting people into your own homes through your screen, all those sorts of things, there were genuine concerns on both sides of that spectrum. And it was the students who said, we've just got to be kind to each other. You know, and I thought that was absolutely amazing. It showed a, a maturity way beyond their years, really. And actually, I thought I could learn quite a lot from listening to these guys. I, I think that's so often the case that I feel I learn so much from the students who I work with. You know, it, it, there's definitely a symbiotic relationship there where they learn from you and, and you learn from them. Now, speaking of, of festivals, Anne, that might lead us nicely into the UCAT festival, which just took, you know, took place uh, what, uh, just over a month ago, really. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about UCAT for listeners who aren't familiar and then a little bit about the festival. Yeah, sure. Well, UCAT is, um, is about five years old. Um, well, it is exactly five years old. It is um, the UK Advising and Tutoring Organisation. Um, and we have members right across the academic spectrum. So Anybody who's interested in advising, frontline advising, academic tutoring, you know, everybody can find a home at UCAT, really. Uh, we founded UCAT, and I'm really, really proud to be part of the, the beginning of this um, in 2015. And we've come a very long way since then, where it was quite a small group of people 
who we didn't we didn't have an organization like this in the UK. We had Nicada, and it was actually Nicada who helped us launch. I mean, we had Charlie Os. These names are known to many people. Charlie Nutt, Oscar came over. Um, you know, and they were all at at, at the launch that we had. Um, so we've got a, a really nice relationship, and we're allied to Nicada, of course. Um, but now, of course, we've developed that, and we've got a professional recognition scheme. So if somebody is looking for that accreditation, there's a lot of opportunities for accreditation in the UK if you're an academic, less so if you're advising or frontline advising. The profile isn't as high. I think sometimes people see it as a an add-on to the other jobs that they have to do, you know, and it doesn't have the profile um, necessarily that it deserves. And I think we're raising that with UCAT by bringing in the recognised um, awards, the recognition awards, um, and, you know, it's mapped that we have a framework and, you know, just like UKPSF and like NACADA, we have competencies and... Um, the application is quite rigorous, I have to say. Um, and the marking of those applications and the assessment of those applications is quite rigorous. Um, but it's it's a wonderful experience, actually. If you have to sit down and say, what have I done in advising? What do I do? Um, and Matt, at some point, it, it makes me think of the session you did with Ryan Sheckel. Um, at the recent Lakota Festival. But we'll maybe come on to that later. Um, but certainly, you know, you have this um, accreditation. It's almost like a validation. And we have lots and lots of institutions who are now joining um, UCAT to enable their advisors and their academic tutoring staff to gain this recognition, which is, you know, that's fantastic for for the whole community, I think. Yeah. And I mean, UCAT's gone a, a long way in such a short amount of time. And like you said, you've been there from the beginning and you've had various roles uh, within UCAT to kind of help develop it. And of course, just most recently being recognized as a uh, recognized leader uh, in advising award. So congrats on that. Thank you. And uh, the UCAT festival, I mean, originally it was supposed to be in person and then it did become virtual. How was that with that transition going from an in-person conference to, you know, making it virtual for everyone and still keeping the conference or in this case, the festival? Right. So we were due, yes, we were due to be in Glasgow for a two-day festival in April. And obviously we went into lockdown here in March. Um, so things had to move very, very quickly. And originally, I don't think any of us foresaw that it would be as um, difficult as it was. And we originally um, just rescheduled the the conference for September because, you know, we thought, yeah, we'll be back face-to-face by then, it'll be fine. And, you know, sort of by June, we were saying, no, this isn't going to happen. We've really got to take this virtual. Um, we've got, so, I mean, everything was organised in the sense, you know, the presentations were done, the schedules were done. I mean, we were really well organised. Um, I said, right, we've got to take this forward, but how do we do it and make it viable? Or how do we make it a good experience for all the members? And, you know, we have members from all over the world. So 
we decided that two days intensive sitting in front of your computer, listening to session after session after session, probably wasn't a great, it can be a great experience for anybody. So we decided to make it a four-day festival of, of celebration, a celebration of advising. And we'd still have all the sessions, but spread over the four days, have some nice sort of evening sessions in there. So we had like a pub quiz one night and we had some word games another night. Um, but spread over time with time built into the schedule for people to network if they wanted to or to take a break or to get away from the computer or, you know, go and pick up the kids from the school run, whatever. So it was designed so that people could sort of live their lives around the festival as well as being able to take part in it at a time that suited them. Um, it was, I, I had reservations, I've got to be very honest. I am a very people person, you know. I like to see the, I like to see people, I like to talk people, let's play truant for, for, for a couple of sessions and go get coffee and talk about a new collaboration. You know, that's me, that's my festival experience. So I really wasn't sure what to expect from this. Would I engage? I was doubtful myself whether I would be distracted by what was going on in my day-to-day -day work life. So I'm sitting at my computer after all. And I was really surprised. It was amazing. It was amazing because you just get you just get into that mindset and you go in. And we had an amazing keynote. Um, we had George Steele and Peter Hagen doing our keynotes for us. Um, and you know what's not to love about that? Um, so yeah, it was it was absolutely it was an amazing experience. Much much better than I expected. Yeah, I think kudos to to you and and the team behind the UCAT Festival because you did a, an outstanding job. And then just recently, uh, last week, is at the time of of us recording this on on Monday the twelfth, you got to to be an attendee at the Nakata Virtual Annual Conference. And I suppose, how did you find that that experience where you didn't have the the responsibility behind ru running the the festival or the conference as such? <laughs> Uh, it was very different. It's a very different experience. And I think initially, I think if nobody's been, I've never been to an Akata festival before, um, conference before. I think if you haven't been, my best bit of advice is go to that first session that tells you what to expect of a conference with Nakata, because it is initially when you look at the program, there's so much going on and there's so many people there. Um, it can be a little bit overwhelming. Um, and we had the time difference, you know. So I was spending the day in work. And as my work day was finishing, the, the festival, people were getting up for breakfast and going to the festival, <laughs> you know. So um, they met, made for some long evenings. But everything's on demand, you know. So I was able to pick out the things that were really important to me. And I've just spent the whole week sort of what having where I'd normally have the radio on in the background. I've got podcasts and you know on demand sessions and things you know going on. And I just don't feel as if I missed out in the way I I might do if it was a physical conference. So much going on at the same time with the parallel sessions, um, and there's no need to miss out if you can just 
downloads and recorded. No, it's all recorded. And you can just download that and listen to it again at your leisure, usually when you're a bit more awake. Definitely. And are there any highlights from the Unicata Virtual Conference or sessions that, that might have stood out to you? There were, I suppose there were three, really, um, that really, really stood out to me. I've got a little, my highlights. So the awards ceremony, we opened with that, really, didn't we? Um, the awards ceremony was brilliant. A lot of people I don't know, because obviously I'm the other side of the pond, but an awful lot of people I did, I did know. And it was wonderful seeing people being recognised for the work they're doing and the variety of work and the breadth and depth of the work they're doing. Um, and I, I found it quite an emotional event because I just thought there's so many people here doing so many good things. And, of course, there were lots of people who were awarded that I do recognise. No. Um, and when people were um, sort of speaking after they'd been given their awards, they were name-checking people that, you know, they're well-known globally. And I just felt really quite proud to be associated with that. You know, I thought it was just a really nice experience. You know, um, I'm going to name-check you now, Matt, because one of the sessions I really enjoyed, and it comes back to what I was saying earlier, was the one you did with Ryan, which is the Umbrella Academy. Yep, yep. And um, I, I just thought it was amazing. And you used this analogy of the um, of the Umbrella Academy. When I was listening to it, I thought, no, I'm like Vanya. I don't have any particular skills. I don't have anything special. I'm not... Um, I'm really, I'm really not. Um, I don't have the gifts that all these other people around me have. And I thought, so yeah, I, I, I relate to Vanya. And then I did the little thing, the little quiz you did online that says, "What character are you?" Um, I'm, I'm not Vanya at all. <laughs> Depending on what time of day you do it, I'm either Luther or I'm the boy. So, <laughs> so something about that sense of responsibility. But then I listened to Ryan's other, um, his on-demand um, piece he did, cyborgs, wizards, something. I really apologise, and I'm apologising to Ryan for not remembering the title of it. But there was something he said mm-hmm. in that and really makes link the two together for me because he said, um, we all have special guilt special skills um, and don't lose sight of those because if you do something special every day it stops being special to you but it's still special to everybody you come into contact with he said so you might think you don't have these skills and actually what you're doing is creating magic and you know so although they were two very different talks Mm -hmm. Um, two very different sessions one linked into the other to combines they both made so much sense to me but I think you know we mustn't underestimate the effect of what we do either on our colleagues or on our students and so it's one of the things I like to it's one of the things I like to think about when I'm if I'm asked for advice or if a student comes and they're, they're stuck with something 
you might not have all the answers. Let's face it, none of us have all the answers. We rarely have the answers for the particular problems we're dealing with. But what you can do is listen and you can take time to be with that person in the moment. And that can often make a huge difference. When I've apologised to a student in the past and said, you know, I'm really sorry, I don't think that's solved your problem. And they've said, no, but you are the first person who's actually listened and tried to understand it. And Anna, that's like a testament to you. I think Matt shared um, a, a reflection that um, I think Lee had, had written about you earlier, but that's one of a myriad of um, positive and glowing reflections that people have on Anne Bingham and that ability to be present with students and staff is a gift and it is one that uh, I have experienced and uh, I know any number of other people have as well so um, you are you are very much uh, appreciated and uh, we are delighted that you're involved uh, in UCAT in NACADA and to to be joining us but maybe before we 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 let you go I think it would be remiss of us not to discuss maybe some of your interests outside of tutoring and advising in higher education because Facebook uh, tells me that you're a member of the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society in the UK and uh, maybe you could uh, tell us a little bit more about uh, the, your, your membership there your interest in whiskey Ah, uh, yes. Um, I am a member of the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society in the UK. Um, I I go to tastings. We have, oh, certainly pre-COVID, we had um, we had regular tastings. So a group of like-minded people would get together. You'd have a meal, maybe six or or so whiskies. And you would taste them, things that you might never try. And the beautiful thing about um, single cask malt whiskies is that every single cask is different. So once your bottle is gone, it's gone. You're never going to taste that again. And I find that really quite fascinating. So it's it's taken a long time, but I'm, I'm, I have a small collection of these, um, these whiskies. Sometimes you get one that's just really beautiful and and you don't want it to end because you know there's going to be no more of it. <laughs> um, and others you're quite happy to share with your friends. Um, but, yeah, I've, the thing about malt whiskey for me is the memories. It's a lot about memories. And I, I wrote a piece for the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society um, magazine just fairly recently, I had a computer failure. It's an, It was um, my error, but my spreadsheet of whiskies that I've tried over the years just simply disappeared. And it was a, a considerable number of years thing. And the reason I kept these whiskies, this whiskey spreadsheet, is not because I wanted to know what number whiskey I tried from, which distillery I think. But very often those whiskies would remind me of something that happened, maybe as a child, riding in my dad's car or going to a sweet shop or something. So it would evoke these memories. And uh, that's what the article was all about. And that's something that happens. But, of course, when you're going to these tasting sessions and you're having 
know, you're tasting these whiskies and it's bringing back memories. What I found when we were recreating my spreadsheet was that the memories of the events themselves were coming back. So you're, you're, you're remembering experiences from the past, but you're already generating new memories for new people. And it's such a fantastic thing. And I think, Anne, I just, I suppose this has been a whole lot of fun to get the opportunity to to talk to you. And I thank you for the work that you do for the profession in terms of, you know, continually looking at ways to improve, continuously looking to put together programs for staff around, you know, continuous professional development. It, it is very much appreciated. It is something that advisors, that tutors, that staff working in higher ed look for. And so the fact that there are people out there putting these together and helping to map them um, against a framework makes a real difference. And I think um, there, that will be a takeaway for people from this interview. But I think there will be a whole host of things. And I think also be, being present like we talked about. So we, it's been a pleasure to, to chat to you. And thanks for taking the time to speak to me and Matt. Oh, guys, it's been a real pleasure. Um, Matt, I don't know how you do this at 7 a.m. Like I said, you know, when it was like we're interviewing Anne, I wouldn't do a friend, just anybody. (laughs) What a joy having Anne Bingham on the podcast. Thank you so much, Anne. You're amazing. And I'm delighted we had the chance to speak with you today. But for everyone, we have come to the end of the podcast episode. We hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, whether you listen through Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, or any of the other podcasting platforms. Also, leave us a rating and a comment. Also, follow us on our social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Advising Podcast. Our next episode, episode 23, comes out on Monday, November 16th. So be well, be safe, and... Keep advising. Don't want a complication.